County, uh, I mean, the Lowell County Dark team for asking me to come back. I was here probably, were some of y'all in the training that, that I heard, maybe five years ago, five, six years ago, maybe? Yeah, it's been a while. I'm going to report back into you what I've seen since that time. Uh, I want to thank the Academy, too, for letting us use this big room so you can spread out a little bit. Um, and I've got a long list of things I want to cover today, and, and but I'm glad to be back in the classroom. I don't know about you all, but I've been doing a lot of work in my pajamas. <laughs> you know, just the bottom half, you know, top half. <laughs> yeah. You know, top half, you have to wear a coat and tie, you know, uh, but everything else has been, you know, fluffy shoes and comfortable pants. Um, so I'm glad to be back in the classroom with you. Um, before we get started, though, uh, who who are you? I don't mean your names. What what do you do? How many how many law enforcement officers do we have here? All right, good deal. All right, that's good. Who else is here besides the police? Prosecutors, thank you very much. Okay, but. Probation. What? Well, what? Well, what? Well, well, what? Case load now. Is it just a change in it because of COVID? Is that impacted your, your work over? It has. You got a hundred more people you keeping an eye on. Forty, or oh, just forty to fifty criminals keeping an eye on. Now, it's the damnest thing I've ever seen. I, it's really not easy job to do, obviously. Well, thank you. I'm glad to get time off to just come to a class. Um, so, social workers, probation, prosecutors, police, who else? Victim witness. Victim witness at prosecutor's office. So you're rounding folks up to bring them to court. Right? Has that been hard to do this? Now, I've been watching some of the Zoom courts, you know, uh, a friend of mine in Michigan sent me a, an, uh, a video clip. I'm sure y'all may have seen this of this protective order hearing that was being done on Zoom. And <laughs> there was the prosecutor, there was uh, his lawyer, there was a judge, there was the victim, there was the offender, and all the different, you know, the boxes. And somehow the prosecutor suspected that the suspect and the victim were in the same house together. Chelsea did, and the judge said, and he started, uh, well, uh, your honor, and by the way, the prosecutor had already figured it out. She had sent the police, and by the time he got up to go to the door, the police were knocking, and they made it. Um, but a lot of these courts, I understand, are still doing a lot of the protective order hearings around the country through Zoom. And I hope they continue that because, you know, it's dangerous for victims to be in a courtroom often with the offender. We'll talk about that a little bit today as well. So who, who, who else do we have? Is that it? The rest of you just wandering off the street? <laughs> no, that's all right. That's okay. You did good. Welcome. 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 Um, I'm going to mix the topics up a little bit. I, I, last night I was thinking as I was sort of studying about what I was going to say today. I want to lay a little foundation for you uh, before we get into the primary, predominant, dominant aggressor uh, issues. I know it's on everybody's mind. 
Debbie Patico case, I'm sure. John, what's the case? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting for long. This is right here. In these cases on body camera footage. This is something new for sergeants. Well, I'm going to first line supervision and what that looks like. It's been interesting to evaluate your officers as you should be. You got body camera footage to look at now. And with the Petito case, what did y'all think? You think they handled it okay? Yeah, well, they're they're investigating them now. The department's asked for an internal investigation of the way they operate. I've read the reports from the agency, and there's some problems with the way they investigate this case. Um, and I'm not anti-police. Don't get me wrong. I've been in law enforcement a long time, but they had written one of the officers had written in a report. He was not suffering from battered boyfriend syndrome. And I thought, what in the world is that? And the sergeant signed it. So there's a thing about domestic violence, obviously. And um, and I'm sure these officers didn't start their shift thinking that we're going to do something that will eventually get somebody killed. Um, but I have a lot of questions about the way they handle this. We'll talk about this today, if you like. Um, the other things, too, I wanted, I wanted to uh, cover with you are some of the things that um, have happened over the last several years. And I, since I was here, I've traveled quite a bit. And I've done some work in your state as well. Your Department of Criminal Justice Services had me talking to people around the state, especially underserved populations. We did focus groups up and down the state talking to women about why they wouldn't call the police. And I heard some interesting statements from three particular groups. One, undocumented immigrant women. Uh, two, older women. And three, African-American women. About why they feared calling the police. And it was interesting because we had a set of questions that we were presenting to the victims uh, or the survivors, excuse me, and um, we had similar questions that we asked of the service providers, sort of your counterparts, legal aid. It was a kind of a disconnect, and, and you know, Virginia is not unique here. We asked um, or survivors, excuse me, about the culture. Uh, especially the undocumented immigrant women. Tell me about your culture, where you're from, Ghana. Some other foreign country, and we heard food, and religion, and family, and you know, health, and all the things that most people would say. And then we asked the service providers, tell me about the culture of the undocumented immigrant population, and we heard gangs and drugs and violence there was kind of a disconnect we thought what's going on here these are these that the victims weren't calling was because they were afraid they were afraid of being labeled illegal aliens right 
I know it's controversial stuff. I, I don't mean to upset anybody early in the morning, but it's interesting when we look at these diverse populations that are unprotected often, are too afraid to call the police. I've got friends in Columbus and New Orleans and Dallas and detectives who work sex crimes, and they say, you know, for a couple of years now, if you are undoc undocumented immigrant woman, you're the kind of the number one target for a rapist. Who's going to call the police? They're not going to call. They're worried about being put out of the country. It's just sort of a odd thing that's happened where populations don't call. We talked to African-American women. Up and down the state here in Virginia, I talked to them. And I said, tell me about your experience, you know, with the police. And I heard, well, you know, I am a victim, and I was, but. So now, you know, we're, we're looking uh, uh, in law enforcement leadership as we talk to leaders and chiefs about, do you understand the populations that you police? Do you understand their experience? Not our experience. You know, if you're victim center, trauma informed, if you look at the victim's experience, how they perceive us, how they survive. Um, and it's been interesting. We're, we're talking about things today that I never imagined when I started training police officers. I hate to admit it, but 1982 was the first time I walked to the classroom to train my own recruits. We've come a long way. We're talking about some serious issues today, and I think we're ready for it. I, you know, I hear people in my generation talk about the millennials. You know, they're not ready. They're not mature. That's not true. We're having conversations today that I never imagined we would have. Uh, in the past, there's luggage that we carried for years that we kind of set down. I know I used to go to my academy and teach in service and the request of my chief because we get complaints from gay and lesbian couples. And I'd go out to the academy and I'd, I'd say, okay, we got domestic violence calls where gay and lesbian couples are calling, but they're, not, they're too afraid to call us. What's going on with the problems? Why don't we get complaints? And, my generation of officers would say, oh, Mark, you know, I don't want to be around gay men. They make me nervous. But really? What about you? I'm so nervous. I don't know. I just don't want to be around them and it's sinful. And I go, whoa, whoa wait, wait, whoa, wait a minute. We're not in the sinning business. We're in the police business. I don't know. I just, I, you know, I get in, I get out real quick. I say, okay, all right. So is it because you think you're so handsome? Where can you go? They're going to grab you, kiss you. First of all, you're not that handsome. <laughs> Second, get over yourself. That was part of my generation. The, the, today's law enforcement, they're old. They, they say, man, that's your bag, not mine. So we are moving, moving ahead. We're, we're, we're doing some good work. We're, we're talking about trauma. I'm going to talk about trauma today as well. Um, I wish I had known then what I know now about trauma, uh, when I investigated police shootings, I'll talk about that as we go along. It's been, it's been interesting. Um, homicides, I know they're up around the country. I, I've, I've been doing a three-year project with San Antonio police, kind of going from bottom up, looking at the way San Antonio domestic murder cases um, were. So we're going to do it. this morning about that they're not where they were through the mid 80s to the 90s where you know we saw 
homicide rates off, off the scale. We had you know, 120, 130 murders a year just in Nashville. And by the way, I'm from Nashville. Have y'all y'all been to Nashville lately? Well, come on back. We like our tourists. And we are, <laughs> this happened, we are the uh, bachelorette party capital of the world. Now, it's really, really something. You know, it's a growing town. We're a music town, obviously. We're going through all kinds of growing pains. And the city council just had a big meeting the other day because we had these party buses downtown Nashville, and they've got hot tubs in them. And what could go wrong with a hillbilly in a hot tub, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> all that right now. Just come see us. We got that hot chicken going now. Um, but what I, you know, when I worked at Homicide in Nashville years ago, um, and I want to kind of give you a little a bit of history here. Um, we were working 25 or 30 murders a year. We're, you know, city, not nearly a million. We are now. Um, and I had a murder of a young woman and a uh, boyfriend killed her and finally arrested and charged him. But, you know, when you work a murder case, you want to kind of bring the victim sort of back to life in some way so the jury and the judge could see what was taken from us. And so that meant I had to really, you know, dig deep into the family, the friends, where she worked, and almost everybody I talked to said to me, she called you. She reached out to you more than once. Um, you let her down. Over and over and over again, I heard heard this from family members. And I went to my boss, my captain, he's a good man, basically my father's general. My father policed in the 40s, 50s, 60s. This was a 60s cop. And I asked him, I said, Captain, what are we what are we doing here? Why are we waiting for another woman to be murdered? Does, does that make any sense to you? And he said, what, what's your point? I said, don't we, can't we do some kind of preventative work? And he said, he just laughed. He said, what is that? He said, we don't do preventative work in law enforcement. We're about reaction. We react, we do a great job when you've been killed, but we just kind of wait till it happens. That's, that was his own mission. And I knew then in the early eighties, I had a job in front of me. Um, try to change the culture inside my police department. And I don't want to fly in false colors here. I'm a survivor. So growing up in a home built, and you know, it was kind of a master's class for me. And I, I took that lesson into my police work and I saw the same kind of behavior from my agency in the 70s and 80s, 90s, that I saw in the police who came to my house when I was a child going up in Dallas. I'm not mad at police, but when you stand on the front porch with your mother and you're five, and Dallas police come to your house, and I remember very well standing behind her, neighbors had called, so we stopped them at the front porch to keep them from coming in the house, tactic of victims to stay alive. My mother stood there and I was, I got four or five years old. I had my arm wrapped around her leg. Big Dallas officer stepped on her front step and, and I thought, thank God you're the police are here. My stepfather wasn't a police officer. Get that straight. But I thought, thank God, you know, here's the police. He stood there, 
late at night. He looked down at my mother and he said, if I come back out here one more time, I'm arresting you and I'm taking these kids away. And her body just trembled. Now, it, it, it's one thing for a, a, a parent to hold a friendly child. It's a whole other thing for a child to hold a friendly parent. So all through my years at Nashville, I remembered that moment. And it helped motivate me. Like some of you are survivors, I can feel you. And it helped me, you know, stay on track that, that general pressure relentlessly applied. And I just, I guess people got tired of me after a while, but I didn't give up. And as time moved on, you know, in the early 90s, we started to look at our murder rate. I, I, Talked to my agency about actually categorized the homicide as domestic murder, not as acquaintance murder. And then my agency started loaning me out to ICP, and I started training around the country, being exposed to police chiefs in Albuquerque and Denver, San Francisco, New York, and Dalton, Georgia, Louisville, Kentucky, talking to police chiefs about you know, the future of policing, taking all those lessons back my agency. And then in 95, we managed to convince the powers to be that if we've got 23,000 domestics a year, shouldn't we have more than one detective following up on 23,000 cases? And the chief said, yeah. So we created the largest domestic violence investigative unit in U.S. history, 39 total personnel, working nothing but domestics. And Captain, Lieutenant, three sergeants, 20 detectives, six master level crisis counselors. We managed to bring our homicide rate down from 25 to 30 down to five in a couple of years. That's not where I want us to be. But the city started laying the foundation of not going back to what we used to do. There was no ever going back to those days where we didn't take this as a priority. And in the last couple of years, I'll show you some photographs of this in a minute. We opened up the largest family justice center in the world in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, these family justice centers are all over the country. I've been in many of them. But we have the largest, uh, and it is the most amazing place. I, I have to tell you, it's just, I pitch myself every time I go in because you walk in, you get police, you get translators, you get child predictive, you get a medical exam if you've been raped. You get forensic interviews with your children all in the same place. So victims don't have to run all over creation to find services. Not the only answer to this, but it's a big, 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 big improvement over the way we operate in the past. We took a whole section of our courthouse and turned it into a courthouse family justice center where the victim walks in without the offender anywhere near them. bulletproof glass, locked in, officers armed. They don't go in the courtroom until the judge calls a docket. They walk in with security and advocate because we did a complete two-year lethality assessment of our community. We interviewed judges and court officers and the prosecutors and probation. And we brought in judges from around the country who are specialists in domestic violence. They sit in our courtroom. We, they said, somebody's going to kill in this courthouse if you don't fix this today. You know what I'm talking about? threats in the hallway before the courtroom doors open, or the actual crime of witness intimidation in front of the court as it's happening in real time. Yeah. 
So we've got that center set aside, and it's working fine now. So victims are starting to report. We're, we're, we're on our way. I'm proud of my, proud of my city. Um, but again, you know, it's it's a work in progress. We, we're, we're still still working to find a, a better a better way. Reports are coming in. I know COVID's been a real a real problem. It has been for for um, agencies around the country. Uh, we still have, well, I guess in the last thirty days, three Georgia police officers killed answering domestics. Three separate incidents across Georgia. Two weeks ago, I was down in Kingsville, Texas. I'm working on a statewide project in Texas where we're building CCR teams in rural Texas. I grew up and most mostly in rural Texas and Waco and Wapahatchee and Pelican, Grand Saline, places like that all over Texas. Now I'm back in these little small communities talking to small town Texas about next steps for them at CCR. And I was down at Kingsville. Some of y'all might know the King Ranch, one of the most famous ranches in the country is down at Kingsville, south of Corpus Christi. About a week before I got there, uh, German um, Spanish 20-year veteran stepped out of his car and was shot by an offender on domestic violence call. It's not over. I've lost four friends killed on domestics. My career nationally. And I was at the scene of all four. That is another moment of reflection if you're in law enforcement about what we need to do next. Um, people wonder who these people are. Well, who would kill a police officer? A domestic violence offender will. Somebody who thinks they own somebody. And then we, the police, come to take that property away from them. That's Kind of a simple way of describing it. But it's reality and it's what we see around the country. That's you know, another uh, thing that we have to worry about. The better we get at policing, the more uh, risk police officers are. And I, I'm not trying to be melodramatic, I'm just telling you that these offenders, uh, they're not crazy. This is not spontaneous. This is not out of control behavior. I, you know, I, I, I read these articles about. You know, people killing victims, killing officers, and they lost control. That's not true in my mind. I know uh, it's very well thought out, very calculated. Domestic violence is is a, is a tool for these offenders. They use it with surgical precision, kind of like somebody using the essentials of life as a tool. And when I say the essentials, I'm talking about your food, transportation. Healthcare, all those things that we don't talk much about in policing, but that conversation now has started. Not here, but the English police, the Scottish police, the Irish police. I've trained in these countries. Now the criminal code is being altered to allow police to charge offenders with coercive control. It's coming to the U.S. We're going to be all right. Don't don't worry. Because we've seen it for years. I know when you talk to people like Evan Stark at Rutgers, now Dr. Stark has been working with the British government on this. He wrote the book Force of Control. If you've never read the book Force of Control by Evan Stark, it's a primer because what Dr. Stark has done, he's changed the language for us. He's using language like 
somebody's liberty was taken away from them. And that's not language we use in law enforcement, right? But when you're talking about liberty, you're talking about your just basic civil rights. You know? And it's subtle, you know, sometimes it's kind of like, you know, you're an officer on the scene, you got to be cuffed, you're walking out the car, and, and she runs out, officer, wait, wait, wait. He's got the car keys in his pocket. I need the car keys. And you think, damn, you share a car. Not everybody calls. We've only got 17% of rape victims calling the police. Today, 17. Some places are a little higher, but that's kind of average. Why aren't victims calling us? Are we looking at that, the negative and positives of police intervention? We have to talk about this. I mean, the, the latest survey that was done on the hotline down in Austin, T.K. Logan, down at the University of Kentucky did this survey. She's a force in the behavioral science unit. She's a world expert on stalking, but she interviewed victims who called the crisis line and said, why don't you call the police? Just like we did here in Virginia, asking victims. And 60%, 80% said they're still or somewhat extremely afraid to call the police. 40% said they fear retaliation from the offender. 20% said they fear losing custody of their children. And you think, what, what? Lose custody of your children? How could you lose custody of your children if you're a victim of domestic violence? I think we all know the answer to that. I know in our community in Nashville, we weren't working with child protective services. So we were calling them, but we were giving them a half report. They were doing their best. They were taking the kids away and often taking the kids away from non-offending parents. This is what the conversations are um with advocates and victims it's real tough right it's just it's you got to think about what that looks like what that negative impact looks like one in five by the way one in five in the survey said they felt safer after they called the police i know this and I, please forgive me I, I am not beating up on law enforcement here i mean i i this is my life's work but this is a conversation we have to have. Um, I was up in Northern California uh, and talking to the police there and the prosecutors in San Jose and Santa Clara County and asking them about their murders. They said, oh yeah, we had, for years, we had large numbers of domestic violence cases inside our Southeast Asian community, from Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and 
And we saw one or two maybe call the police before the murder. And we thought, well, if they just call us, maybe we can help them. So they thought, we got to stop this. We got to do outreach. They went out in these communities and started talking to a lot of these refugee families who were coming from Southeast Asia. And they said, why don't you call the police? We're here. We have these services for you. And many of the victims from Vietnam said, you don't understand. We're refugees. In Vietnam, you don't call the police. The police call you. Complete misunderstanding of, of the services provided. So it's not enough just to be there. It's not enough just to have a website, police department. You got to do outreach. You got to communicate with the, with the population that you police. They, they need to know who you are. You know, I tell chiefs all the time, you know, let's just start by looking at your department's website. I know this sounds kind of silly, but if I go to your website, your police department, how many pages do I have to go through before I find a number where I can call if I'm a rape victim? I see the head there, I see the so-and-so police department, I see your dog, I see your helicopter, I see your scuba team, I see your SWAT team. I'm looking, I'm still looking, I still haven't found on page two, page three, page four. Where is the contact for the rape crisis center? That's the way you speak to the community. So, you know, we, we still are still kind of stumbling through a lot of this. We're not thinking about what we look like from law enforcement to that population. Um, but we're moving in the right direction. The, you know, the, the you have options program out of Ashland, Oregon. I've been watching that really careful because Commonwealth University down in Richmond is doing this now. They're using that you have options program and the way they investigate rape cases. And, you know, I went up to Oregon, we were training police chiefs up there, and the chief from Ashland came in and said, I want to show you what I'm doing, because I need to tell you what we did wrong. And then we're all listening. He said, you know, I, I'm in college town. There were a lot of rapes on campuses, and the victims would come in and report the crime, and, but they would walk away after the initial investigation. And the chief said, I couldn't figure it out. Well, we weren't making any cases. We were not we we're not arresting anybody for rape in a college town. Can you imagine that? So he said, you know, I, I got to figure this out. So he started watching his detectives. And the detectives were doing a great job, but they were doing traditional policing. Okay, ma'am, you got raped. Here's what we're going to do. Got to get you to the hospital. Got to do a rape kit. We got to do a, 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 a you know, we got to look into parts of your body that, that only your gynecologist ever goes. Oral swabs, anal swabs, vaginal swabs. Hair pulled, hair cut, blood drawn, you know, fiber, and the victims are saying, Whoa, what are you talking about? I'm not doing all that. You got raped. Well, you crazy? They walked away, but the problem was in Ashland, like in Missoula, Montana, where they part of a civil rights investigation. The offender kept raping. They didn't stop. And I know y'all probably kept an eye on this. You know, we've we're having another conversation too about that, about who these people are. Domestic violence offenders raped as well. That's where most of your rape is, actually. Most rape's not stranger. And so when the chief saw this, he said, Well, I want to change this. Let's try an experiment. He started giving the victims options. He said, Here's what we're going to do. You get a rape case, you let the victim set the pace. Let's move at your pace. We'll get you to a crisis council today if you'd like to, and then Put your name down as a Jane Doe and report. Maybe we'll hold on to the kid. If you want to do a rape kit, that's fine. If you don't, it's your choice. Let us explain to you what it's like, what, what you're going to have to go through. And then we'll move at your pace. And what happened in Ashland 
was pretty amazing. The victim started slowly staying with the police investigation. They started prosecuting rapists. This is what is happening in Reno. This is what's happening in Denver. So we're looking not only at the problems of the victim reporting, we're looking at ourselves. We're assessing ourselves and policing. How do we do this work? It's been pretty amazing. Oklahoma, and I, I, I do a lot of work in Oklahoma. I did CCR work in Oklahoma for years, and I know the state well. Pretty conservative, you know. They've uh, got you know different views on a lot of things that I don't. But you know, crime fighting, crime fighting, and the state legislature said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make mandate uh, in our law that says every officer now has to do the LAP with victims. By law, that's a big deal. That is a big deal because the homicide rate in Oklahoma is so, so, so high. Um, yeah, a long conversation with the chief in Brooklyn Park, Maryland, right outside of Minneapolis. And a lot of homicides in suburban America. That's where people live and sleep. And have this long conversation with him. I said, Chief, tell me how you worked your call. And he said, Mark, my officers go to the scene and they, they'll do the initial report. And if they think they need to, they'll do two risk assessments. One is the LAP, another one we created. And then if the offender rates high danger, you rank the dangerousness of, of your LAP like you do here in Loudoun County. He said, what we'll do next is within four hours of the report being written by the officer, the sergeant will send a copy of the report to the probation office, to the prosecutor's office, to the shelter, and to a systems analyst inside the police department. So in four hours, four other people are looking at the police report. And I said, good Lord, what in the, how, how did you do that? Why did you do that? He said, Mark, it makes no sense today. If you ask someone, is he going to kill you? And they say, yes. And you write it in a piece of paper and you put it in a box and let, wait for a detective to look at it two or three days later. He said, that's malfeasance. What are we thinking? He said, this is a with the big obstacles we've had of the general public understanding this, that this is not a one-off. This is not the way this works. And that's why we don't use the cycle of violence when we train police anymore. Because it's not cyclic. It's on a continuum. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. And by the way, you know, I taught it, you know, I, I read the Laura Walker's book on the battered woman. I understand her, you know, the definition of the honeymoon phase. And I would actually tell victims that. I said, ma'am, you know, maybe the reason why you're not cooperating, are you in the honeymoon phase? And here's what they say. What's that mean? You mean when I got my ass kicked on my honeymoon? Is that what you're talking about? So there is no honeymoon phase for a lot of victims. Because these offenders don't think they've done anything wrong. And that's a fact. You all know that. I've had offenders at the crime scene who had to separate them. I'd say, sir, what's going on tonight? And they start off by saying some long story about how their mother-in-law hated them you know and every time she goes home to see her mother she comes back and there's trouble her mother's a damn spoon it's, you know somebody stirs things up i didn't want to go see her mother okay so now we're getting down to it so what did you do well i told her she couldn't go so you told your 35 year old wife she couldn't go see her mother right so how'd you do that well, I just sat her down and talked to her. So you physically restrained your wife to tell her that she couldn't go see her mother. Is that what you did? 
So here's somebody who believes that they are entitled to you. And they'll break the law and admit it. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. But it's part of privilege, right? It's, and you may disagree with this. I know there's a lot of controversy about talking about privilege nowadays, but I think it's a real thing. I'm not sure how y'all feel about it. Because if somebody's saying, that's mine. If, if you want to get a heavy dose of privilege, a good friend of mine wrote a book on this called Why Do They Kill? David Adams up in Boston. They've been interviewed 30 DV killers in prisons in that state. The state let him do this, though. David's been running a batter's intervention program for probably 35 years. I said, David, tell me what you saw that stood out to me. He said, Mark, you know these killers. I do. I've locked a lot of them up. He said, but the ones I interviewed, he said, not a single one of them, none of them, showed any sign of remorse. Not a one. Not a single one. And he said, by the way, the ones who killed their children, he labeled it um, oh, uh, a righteous slaughter. I've never heard a term like this before. I said, what's that mean, David? He said, they felt righteous in killing all their children because that was their property and they couldn't have that. No, can't have you, nobody else will. So we know who these offenders are and we know that they don't just do one crime. It just goes on and on and on. Now, this is the sort of the big shift that we've seen in the thinking of law enforcement. How often do they break the law? High Point, North Carolina, they completely reorganized their system in High Point. They're doing offender focus, not just the police, probation, courts. They're keeping an eye on offenders. Every time an offender gets involved with some kind of a domestic violence case, they graduate to another level. They, have, they put them in letters. And the higher up the outfit you go, the more attention you get. And this is smart. This is offender focused. And it's working, by the way. New South Wales police down in Australia, they started their high point program down there. So it works. It's smart policing. How do you focus your work in policing? I'll tell you my, my problem when I was a lieutenant and I managed 23,000 cases a year. Who, who, where do I spend my time? Which one of these cases do I not work on? And which case do I work on? How do I manage my workload at my 20 detectives? Well, what's easy to do? You have to focus on this. But offender focus is a pretty smart idea. And then, you know, we're still battling the whole bond condition. I know some of you all probably talked about this. There's a whole reform issue now around the country about bail and bond. How do we meet in the middle with the bail and bond reformers and the advocates and police, because, you know, we've had cases already where offenders are out of jail and killed or sniffing others. They got out quick. They should have not, in my mind, been released. It's an understanding of who these offenders are. Not every state, by the way, does what Virginia does. You know, in Virginia, your office of administrative reports, you know, they, they supply the judges with a mirror image, LAP, that you're using here in Loudoun. They, you go to a judge up and down the state, go down to Roanoke, they pull out the judge's review sheet before they release somebody. And if they, these offenders are exhibiting certain things. The bond goes up, but they don't get out. This is smart. You know, judges, they need help as well. So that's some of the new things that are going on. And then, you know, I've been lucky since I was here last. I've, I've traveled some overseas that have been in, in Ghana, 
trying to understand how we can do a better job. So I want to, I want to do that today. I want to talk about next steps for us. But I'm really more of a I'm more of a facilitator than a trainer, I guess. So let's talk a little bit today. Don't don't be shy. Uh, you know, I want I want to hear what you have to say and how you feel about it. I know you. This is your time. I don't want you to waste your time today. Let's have a conversation. If something's on your mind, let's talk about it. If you know, if, if you want to try to understand advocacy, let's let's talk about it. If you want to understand law enforcement, because I think one of our biggest obstacles that we had at Nashville when we started trying to wrestle with with the with the whole problem of domestic and sexual violence. We didn't understand ourselves really. We didn't understand the limits. You know, the advocates thought, you know, the, the police don't care. They don't understand. The, you know, the police thought, you know, how could you love somebody that just broke your arm? <laughs> and I used to tell my officers, well, wait a minute, but slow down just a little bit. Um, this is what in domestic violence, people are, who live together fall in love. They have children, they have a mortgage together. It happens. They happen to have married the wrong person. They're in a relationship with the wrong person who's violent. Now, if it's against the law to pick the wrong person as a mate, hell, half of us will be on probation. Don't raise your hands. I don't want to know your personal business. <laughs> there was a misunderstanding of the police and, and, and others about alcohol. I, I had tons of conversations about this. They, my detectives would come to me and they'd say, Lieutenant, I can't interview her. She's been drinking. I'd say, well, what's the problem with that? Well, you know how people are drink. They, they don't tell the truth. And I thought, where the hell did you hear that? Do, do any of you all drink alcohol? None of them. Okay, maybe a few. So when you drink, do you lie? No. You, that's when you get really truthful. This is why we stopped having Christmas parties at headquarters. <laughs> now it got bad. <laughs> He's going for the cheese. Stop him, Don't get promoted. Don't do that, man. So, you know, so when families are drinking, this is when victims, because I have to live with you. And if you hit me one more time, I'm calling the police. This is when victims are killed, by the way. This is you know, the problem with, with walking away from somebody that's been drinking. They're in peril even more. They don't realize how much danger they're in sometimes. And then offenders, please, you get someone drinking alcohol. This is the number one profile of a cop killer on a domestic middle-aged white man drinking alcohol using a rifle or a shotgun. That's who kills police officers on domestic. That, that's our, that's what, but alcohol, alcohol, alcohol. So we have to understand it. And then prosecutors, you know, our prosecutors didn't have an understanding of the limits of policing. They're, they're really are yet. It's on its way, I'm sure. But it's not there yet. So there's limits to what the police can do. But now, now they got body-worn camera footage. That's really making a big difference in these cases. But in the past, you know, we had these horrible conversations with, you know, prosecutors. And they were overworked. And finally, you know, 
my officer came to me, my patrol officer said, Lieutenant, I'm just having trouble with this. I have a great case. This case should have gone forward. They dismissed it. They should have gone. I don't care. Just bring me the case. I'll, I'll talk to the prosecutor. And before long, I had a big stack of, of reports. And I thought, damn, this is pretty bad. We got a lot of cases. That should so I called the chief and I said, Chief, I want to go talk to the prosecutor. It's just not going to be fun. And, you know, it's kind of a come to Jesus meeting, you know. Chief said, okay, you think you're ready? I said, yeah, yeah. And I should have stopped and thought about what I was about to do because I was about to walk into the office of a professional arguer. They have a degree in arguing, by the way. They have not only a degree, they have a doctorate in arguing. And here I am, you know, just a hick. And I walked in with a stack of police reports saying, why don't you do your job? <laughs> and not, you know, Case after case after case, and they sit back and listen very politely. And then the district attorney said, Is that is that all you got? I said, Yes, sir. And I said, and I thought, well, they'll straighten out now. I told them. So they pulled out their reports that I didn't have. And they read it back to me. They said, Okay, Lieutenant, here's a narrative in this report. Jane hit Bill. Bill hit Jane, arrested both. Now, can you explain to me what the judge might think when they see this report? Does this look like proof beyond reasonable doubt? What do you expect us to do? And then they did it again and again and again and again. I said, okay, I, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. But then I had to ask for help. I said, I, I need your help. I need you. I need you. I need your brain in my roll call at my police department talking to my police officers about what is expected of them beyond probable cause i need your help and they said okay this is 96 or 97 they're still doing this today pre-trial conferencing on misdemeanor cases i sit in a room with my detectives officers for almost six months watching this conversation happen over and over and over again, the prosecutor would say, I need five items, one, two, three, four, I need, I need six different. And the prosecutor would say, I'll get you four, I can't get the fifth. And after a while in the negotiations, I saw them start to understand one another. And then I started reading my officer's reports and it sounded like the prosecutor was writing my officer's reports. And then I'd go to court and watch my detectives and they'd walk in with a solid case. And I'd watch the defense bar tell the client, you better plead because they've got you now. Things changed. That's progress. That's, you know, that, that's what we had to understand. We weren't doing any of that. So, you know, the victims were waiting. They were waiting for us to get better. We just weren't getting better until we all got together in the same room together. That's what, you know, I'm sure is going on here with your CCR. So um, that's sort of the evolution of my city. So let me let me show you a couple of things. Now, I want to give you my email address and my website and then... And I will give you all of my PowerPoint presentations, whatever you want. Take it, take my name off of it, put your name on it. Tell your boss, you wrote it. it it's all right. Computer stuff. Okay, so there's my email address, my website. 
Uh, if you hear me talk about something today or we have a discussion and you want more information on, on any of these topics, just drop me a line and I'll be more happy to share with you what I've got. I do a lot of corresponding with, with police. Um, I do a lot of policy review for law enforcement. Um, uh, Philadelphia, I'm looking at their all their policy work now, Pittsburgh. Uh, we're almost through San Antonio. We actually, by the way, a group of us, IECP, I've been working with IECP since 87. So, and it's here, obviously, in Alexandria, and we've had a team of, of subject matter experts that travel around the country, and we just finished a 12 agency project for three years, and we sort of took the agencies apart and brought them back together around sex assault and domestic violence, and we got a lot of good ideas on how that should happen. So uh, let me know whatever whatever you need. I'd be more, more happy to uh, give you what I've got. And I want to acknowledge this too. Um, I've got two nephews on duty right now, one in Texas and one in Tennessee. Um, and I've got more nephews on the way and nieces on the way working policing. Um, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this, or nor have we ever seen anything like this in, in, in all of our time here. The number of officers that we've lost to COVID. Um, I don't want to be controversial. I, you know, I, I don't. I don't want to get political. I don't do politics. It kind of makes my head hurt. Um, but I encourage you all to consider, if you haven't, uh, you know, talk to your doctor and, and think about uh, think about this uh, because. You're all essential services people, all of the advocates, probation, police. You don't take a day off. Crime doesn't take a day off. You have not taken a day off since all this started. I know you have. Um, but we've lost a lot of officers because of COVID, and they're knocking on doors right now in this town and everywhere else, and they're dealing with it as best they can. But I just I wanted to acknowledge, especially to the law enforcement here, how much I appreciate their sacrifice. You know, you accept when you get into policing that you have to risk your life for you people you don't know. Now you've got another layer of danger added to it. And here is obvious that we've lost over 800 officers so far to COVID. So please be careful in your work. I just thought I'd mention that. Uh, here is the, is the overall bigger assessments that we've done. If you want, uh, you know, that's the QR code for this big report. You can download it from ICB's website. Um, if you are someone looking at your agency right now for next steps on where to go next um, and not only where you need to go we've got a whole section on community outreach in other words going to your community in law enforcement and saying how are we doing going to probation going to the courts going to everybody that you work with and say please tell us what we need to do next and agencies now use this around the country, so take, take advantage of that as well. Uh, it's a lot of hard work, um, and as you know, it's, it's you have to assess yourself. I mean, I, I don't think there's any other way to do this without looking at ourselves and asking what, what's our next step and what are we doing right or wrong. This is our family justice center in Nashville. If you come to Nashville, got my email address, drop me a line. I'll, Hook you up with the folks at Family Justice Center. Uh, and you're not going to believe it when you see it. It's just this thing, uh, this is half of our headquarters building in our police department. It is the Family Justice Center. 
Uh, it's three levels of unbelievable work going on right today. Uh, so let me know if you're interested in becoming a national. My, my mother, Mary Parrish, um, there's a center named after her. It's a transitional housing program. My wife started it over 20 years ago. So far, they've worked with around 8,000 victims, and it's transitional so the victims can stay for two years. Women and children, no, no rent, no utilities, free lodging, English second language, job placement. It's really amazing. Um, and I know the advocates know the transitional housing program, what they do, but law enforcement sometimes doesn't see this. And that was my, you know, my job at, at Nashville for, for years was to explain to my agency the women that the police often would bring to the Mary Parish Center, what they look like two years later. You know, sometimes you move on to the next case. When you know that you know, a woman that you drove to the transitional housing program with a trash bag full of clothes and no money, uh, now got a college scholarship, got her own car, and her kids have health care. Police don't get a chance to see that. I think that's a real shame because I think the officers would like to see that. That's the end result of my work. That's what goes on at, at the Mary Parish Center, one of our programs. You've got obviously transition housing programs here as well. Um, you know, let, let me, I'm going to show you something today. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be a while. We're going to get to it, but I've got a sort of a co-presenter. His name's Ty and, um, it's an offender. And he's interviewed and in the, in the, I've got several little segments. I, I, I broke them up. I, I took a look at it last night. I thought I'm just going to add this today because I thought maybe you'd like to hear from Ty. He's an offender who was convicted and ordered into batter's intervention. He made it through it. And uh, this is a several years ago. This, the images are going to be a little old, but just listen to the voices. They're, they're not any different uh, today than they were yesterday. But Ty's older and he's now running a batter's intervention program himself. And I just thought it'd be interesting for you all to hear um, a friend of mine, Michael Paymar, interview him about how he managed to evade the police and how he operated when he was an offender. So uh, you're, you're going to see Ty a little bit through the day as well. Now, let me take you back. Um, and by the way, we'll. I'll try to break you about on the hour. I, you know, I, my breaks are you know, about the same as a, well, an officer's flat. You know, we'll, we'll get you out here about every 55 minutes or so. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to keep a close eye on the times here. But let me let me kind of take you back in time a little bit from my father's generation, because I want you to listen to particular to the language and what is said in these two little segments that I'm going to show you. Because uh, I, you know, I'm from that, you know, group that believes that the words that, you know, you think with are the words you speak with. So this was from my father's age when he was trained and before he passed away, we talked about this, about how he dealt with domestic violence. It was different the way I did when I got into police. This is a training film from the 1950s on domestic violence.
trouble. About 20% of the calls coming to the station are family trouble. And this was Joe's first call. Joe had visions of being a hero, of defending some frail little woman whose husband was mistreating her. case, Joe was told by a rough old lady of the house to mind his own business. If she and her husband wanted to throw things at each other, that was their business. So, family troubles. Now, here's a problem with this. Um, family troubles is, we don't investigate family troubles. That's not what the police do. And we labeled it that years ago because we didn't understand it. Just didn't understand it, so we call it something less than. Here's the problem. Now, this is in the 50s that you have to consider shelter didn't come along to the 1970s. So, uh, so there were no services, the law didn't define it. Um, there were some let me let me say this: there were services. I'll give you an example about services. Now, this is kind of the kind of the history back in the 30s, 40s, through the 50s, 60s. You go to places like rural Minnesota or Wisconsin, and you ask them, tell us about how you dealt with domestic violence years ago, and you'll hear somebody say, well, the ladies auxiliary at the church, you know, they they all agreed that they would all in their farmhouses set a room aside just for a battered woman. They have to be ready, bed, food, clothing, whatever they needed. Then they would all notify the preacher. The preacher would go see the sheriff. They say, Sheriff, whenever you have a woman who needs a place to go, just call me and I'll find a place. So there was organizations working, you know, sort of it was kind of like an underground railroad in a way for domestic violence victims. Who knew, right? That went on in the small communities, but for the most part, you know, families were pretty much trapped, had no no way out, and and police were. You saw the attitude, well, let's just go in. Oh, we want to throw at things one another. That's our business. So in other words, oh, and then we'll get involved and we'll arrest somebody, maybe, or maybe not. That was uh, domestic violence from the 1950s, 1960s. Um, I thought it was interesting, though, that the woman said, it's all right, right? The woman said. So she's trying to convince the police not to get involved, right? So let me show you from a modern version of this. And you see what this woman said after her incident. County deputies released a more dramatic video of a domestic violent shooting. Shows deputies dodging bullets trying to take a man into custody. Channelized Michael Hardy went through the video today. Michael, the shooting happened almost two years ago, so why is this coming out now? Well, during the sheriff's office previously released some of this video, but more is coming up now that the jury has returned a verdict against the defendant. You're about to see and hear exactly what it's like to come under fire. This video may look like something out of a movie, but it's real life, and it all unfolded outside this downtown home in July of 2016. Today, the Volusia County Sheriff's Office released more body camera footage of this domestic violence shooting. After a deputy takes cover behind a tree, you can see a gunshot victim crawling across the front lawn. The deputy jumps back as shots are fired from the house. 
you hear the victim cry out for help. The deputy approaches the side of the house and drags the victim out of the crossfire, perhaps more heart-wrenching. Young children running into the arms of a deputy as the suspect remains inside the home. In the end, 26-year-old Emmanuel Rosado was taken into custody. Investigators say the victim was his wife, Victoria, who was shot in the backside after the two got into an argument. Emmanuel was later charged with aggravated battery and two counts of attempted first-degree murder for shooting at deputies. Last month, the jury found him guilty of one count of battery and second-degree attempted murder, but not guilty of the other attempted murder charge. Court records show Victoria sent this letter here to the judge saying she did not want to testify against her husband or pursue charges against him. Jail logs show Emanuel is behind bars in Volusia County. The court has not yet set a sentencing date so far. Michael Lombard, Channel 9, Eyewitness News. So here you've got the victim kind of saying the same thing, but now they're writing a letter to the judge asking the case to be dismissed. Now in the past, you know, we would look back and go, okay, next case. We're done. Nothing further. That's changing now. Questions are being asked by police. Why are they not here? Who is keeping this person from the courts? Making the witness unavailable for the offender cancels out your right to confrontation. We know that now. Courts in Topeka, courts down in Richmond, the courts in Albany, the courts in New York. Your opponents now are working with the prosecutors, allowing the prosecutors to file issues of forfeiture. And it works. All the judge needs is a preponderance of the evidence to show them why this victim's not here. It's pretty easy sometimes to find. He's violated the order twice. Two plastic police reports. She said, I can't cooperate. He'll kill me. The Add all that up and you give it to the judge and judges say, you know what? Makes perfect sense why she's not here. The court, and I'm, I'm you're shaking your head. I hope I'm right on this. The prosecutors can't come to court and claim you have a right to confrontation when you yourself made the witness on the Reynolds versus U.S., 1878. And in the We've got a we've got a great law here. I, you have a, you have a right to confront your accusers in court. I hope it never changes. That's what democracies are about. You just can't walk in and accuse somebody. But the right to confrontation has been in the criminal code since Babylonian days. The Romans had it in their criminal code. We barred it from the from the Europeans. It was the, the Sixth Amendment solid, right? But forever, the offender has used the, you know, the system to defeat us. They just beat us over the head with this so victims don't come to court. And when this happens, the courts say, oh, well, she doesn't want to prosecute. This is fear. This is what this is. I'm so afraid that I'm going to ask somebody to, even though I got shot, say, I don't want to go to court. So I won't be there. So I'm watching this happen. By the way, you say this, this, this Reynolds case, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, I, but I, studied the law carefully and I trained police all over the country and I'm not thinking about what this means to us in policing. This is a major event. Yes, ma'am.
activities, whatever evidence you may have for additional statements to law enforcement, to nurses, et cetera, over the top of the there it is. So you've got you've got case law here in the courts. Uh, and again, if, 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 if you want more of this, I I actually collect motions now from prosecutors around the country. And I'll I'll send them to you uh, if you want to pass them on to your prosecutor in your jurisdiction. But you know, when I talk about Reynolds, let me just explain the cases for a second. Because I think this is really kind of interesting law. Utah wasn't a state territory. And the rest of the country said, all right, you could join us, but you can't bring all those wives with you. So the Mormons, you know, settled Utah at the time. They had a lot of wives, the Mormons. So the head of the Mormon church sent his secretary, Reynolds, to confront the U.S. Marshals and, and confess to having multiple wives, and he did. They arrested him, bigamy, and they brought him into court, and only one wife appeared, and he lost the case there. And, they appealed it all the way to Supreme Court because they wanted to prove that having multiple wives was a right, you know. And so they got to Supreme Court, and Reynolds said, I have a right to face my accusers. There's only one woman in the court that day. And the Supreme Court said, Now, wait a minute, Mr. Reynolds. Again, you can't claim the right to confrontation when you make the witnesses unavailable. Now, what's been unusual about this kind of method is it's been used over and out of crime in games for years. Now we're starting to use it with domestic violence cases. And I think that's important. So same kind of thing. By the way, the film of the officer down in Belusa County, uh, that tree he, he was standing behind really wasn't big enough. If you shoot at me, I want a redwood tree or two. You know, or I want to be in the next county when you shoot at me. I don't want to be near you. But they worked it out. And then the other thing, too, I think, which is Critical is the child you saw, you know, in the film. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in, in family, you know, about body work for the last four or five years. But I'm going to tell you what I'm watching. This is interesting. The world is seen through the eyes of a police officer now. We've never had that before. We've never had these kind of images where people are really seeing what an officer sees every day. And it has a real impact on people when you see a child running away from gunshot, a gun to fire in the background. So exposure to domestic violence now has become a subject people are talking about. And I have to tell you, uh, I've been exposed to domestic violence. Some of you have as a child. And, and when you expose a child to domestic violence, it impacts the way your brain develops, for God's sake. And by the way, it's not four or five years old. Dr. Bruce Perry down at Baylor, who's been studying this for years, has told us it's about 10 months old. That's when your brain starts to develop. You learn how to walk and talk and socialize. And if you're living in a world of violence, your brain develops differently. Dr. Perry said that child is the one you're going to see in a domestic murder 20 years from today. Makes perfect sense. Right? So getting that child away from exposure is another part of, I think, our job in law enforcement. Now, we'll let the court settle it, work it out. But just to stop that exposure is pretty pretty critical. Now, you know, I've talked to officers over and over and over again about this. Tell me how you approach children when you go to the scene domestic. Well, you know, I, I talk to them sometimes. I'm alone. I, I'm not a forensic interviewer. And I say, no, wait, wait, I'm not talking about forensic interview. I'm just talking about it straight up, just how are you doing today, son? And I I, I hear it. Officer in South Carolina said, Mark, I, I did that. The five-year-old 
and, and, I, and I took him, uh, I moved him away from his parents, like you'd recommend, and I'm walking away with him. And the first thing he said was to me, he said, is that the gun you're going to shoot me with? He's in uniform. And the little boy looked at the gun. He said, oh, no, who told you that? He said, my daddy did. You going to shoot my mommy with that gun? So he, he, it's not enough that they're just exposed to the violence. Often the offenders telling these kids that the police, the bad guy, will come in to hurt them. Police will, look, the law enforcement loves everybody. But children, oh, please, this is historic. Cops will do anything for a child. And I hear this kind of stuff coming out from the children. So, you know, I had this long conversation with my friends down in Austin about this and uh, University of Texas. They, they already looked at it. They studied children. They actually interviewed children who were survivors. And they said, what do you want the police to do when they come to domestic? And these kids had a lot to say. They said, please tell these police officers, don't interview me in front of my parents. Make perfect sense. Please tell police officers to explain to me why I'm why they're there because I'm afraid they're going to take me to jail. Several of the uh, the, the, the children said, "I hide. I get in the closet, on the covers, on the bed. I, I I go somewhere else." And then there was a bunch of them said to the to researchers, they said, "Please tell the police that when they talk to me, could they bend over?" Because it's so big, but don't get too close because the head's so big, big police head. <laughs> you know, you remember how big the police were when you were a little police officer with the biggest thing on the planet, big, big, big gun. So what they did, what Austin did, I thought was matches and if you catch on fire they work god bless our firefighters you know they're all crazy they're running the stuff i remember duck and cover now they, i'm not sure whether any violence can remember duck and cover this was when the teacher at civil defense week said children if you see a thermal nuclear device explode in the playground yeah yeah, they did. They said this. We had failed. There's a big trail of a bomb going off in the swing swing set, you know. Yeah, it's like, look at there, they go blow to the swing set. And they said, Don't look at the fireball. When you get under your plywood desk, you know, and you, well, you know the rest of the story. I mean, they tried to make us feel safe, I guess, you know. But what Austin did is they took the safety plan and put it, put it to use. They said every time we go to see the domestic, the officers will. Talk to the children, they'll look at them, make sure they're injured. They'll ask them, are you afraid to talk to me here? Are you afraid to talk to me? And they, you know, they tell them, please, if a fight happens again, don't get trapped in a small room. Get out, call 911. Don't get involved in the fight. You know, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. They keep telling the kids that. And guess what happened? A third of their calls started coming in 911 from children. Pretty simple fix, right? But looking at the exposure, like you saw this child in, in Volusia County, we don't know the number, right? And I, NCADB, the National Coalition, and I was on their board for several years, 8 million, maybe? We don't know. We don't have any children exposed. There's no way to put a number on it. That's just a guess. 
It, this is the number one call for service to police. Though. This is the one. This is the one where police spend most most of the time, and we see a lot of kids on domestic support. So anyway, so when we come back from our break, we're gonna take a little break here. Get you, uh, you know, uh, smoke and joke and text. Um, I want to show you the model, the modern model of the violence against women, interpersonal violence, gender-based violence. You call it whatever you want. But I'm going to give you the specifics of it, and we'll we'll go from there. So uh, let's take. I want to do this throughout the day. Um, uh, so um, any BFOs, uh, y'all know what. What it be? That's a blinding flash. The obvious. Yeah, yeah. I get, I get those every once in a while. Um, or are we on track? Does this make sense to you? Are we okay so far? Okay, good. All right. Well, good. You know, shout out um, if it, it sounds like bovine scatology, um, and we'll talk a little bit about it. I mean, because this is your work, so. Uh, I don't, you know, I want to make sure we're all on the same sheet of music. So, um, I guess for the last uh, 16 years now, a group of us from IECP actually have been um, putting on what's called the National Law Enforcement Leadership Institute on Violence Against Women, all funded by the uh, Justice Department. And it's a diagnostic four days of 30, 35 police chiefs in the room together talking about their communities, their challenges, their obstacles, their standards, their accountability, and all the other things. And we've trained around, I think, 900 chiefs so far. And it's really been an unbelievable. Tapping and crime rates and you know um, trust of the public and uh, now police reform and I, I I'm a big advocate for reforming the police. Police have been reformed forever. We, I don't police. Well, I didn't police the way my father policed. Obviously, and my nephews aren't policed the way that I police. So there's been constant reform, but reform around violence against women is something I'm interested in. Uh, for a lot of reasons, but when we talk to chiefs about this, you know, they say we've got to stop focusing in just on domestic violence. Not great. These are the big four, I call them. These are the areas where we find ourselves now. When you see one, you're more likely to see the other. When you see domestic violence, you're likely to see sex assault. Sex assault, yeah, you might see strangulation, strangulation, you might see stalking. These are interconnected and co-occurring crimes, is the point. And the mistake that we've made historically is that we put these things in like singular events. And it's not, it's not because we didn't want to understand it, it's because the criminal justice system kind of forced us into by necessity of looking at things like an incident. And we trained officers for generations to do incident-based policing. And this is what I'm talking about. So go out on the street and, and you're working a robbery and the guy gets robbing an ATM and 
Um, you take the statement, he's all upset, and you know, you know, say, sir, it's all right, it's all good, you're good, take your time, and he gathers himself and says, well, you know, um, guy came up behind me with a gun, I, I didn't see his face all that well, and he took my car, took my cash, and jumped in a truck and went out on the parking lot, and went south on the highway, and tag was R four six seven. I remember that much, and you're thinking, damn, that's pretty good, you know. You got robbed, you know. That's a pretty good uh, definition of what happened that you're describing the suspect. You know, a week later, you catch a guy, you charge him on robbery. One o'clock at ATM against Mister Smith, you know, at the boom, that's your case, and, and you convict him, and you move on. You do that by necessity. It's, it's transaction. You just get, it gets every day, every day, every day. Now, hour later, you get a domestic violence call, and you knock on the door, and she says, "Come on in." And you say, what, what's wrong, ma'am? And she says, it's my husband. I think about your husband. Well, it all started about two years ago. So that goes into your computer where you got that, you know, that incident-based computer working, and then it kind of rejects it. It says, you might even say, ma'am, uh, well, wait a minute. Can, I'm sorry, you know, you were a victim two years ago. Can you tell me what happened tonight? Now, uh, the unintended impact is they say, don't you want to know what happened to me two years ago? And then your case starts to fall apart. The victim says, um, I have to be able to trust you to tell you what I'm about to tell you. So thank you. And by the way, I'm, I'm going I'm to kind of give sort of inside baseball here a little bit as well. And the advocates don't have to acknowledge this. You know, I, I got it. Uh, but I have talked to advocates, uh, not in my own community, but around the country. They know how to navigate around this. That's when you'll hear an advocate, a victim will go to the shelter and get a protective order of assistance, and the advocate will say, we need to get you down to the police station, but we can't do it right now because the day shift is on. So let's wait to the evening shift. Or... I want to be sure you get a protective order, so let's wait until Judge Smith comes back and he's on the docket tomorrow instead of Judge Jones. This is, I, I don't want to get the advocates in trouble here, but you start judge shopping or police shopping with people who don't practice this thinking, this singular incident-based thinking anymore. Again, it's old-style criminal justice but if you do it this way, then you're missing the context. And context is everything. The history is everything. If I'm trying to understand why she hit him, why she slapped him, why she scratched him, I need to know that he raped her two days ago. I, I need to understand that. Now fear is in this room, right? As my good friend Ann Much, prosecutor in Colorado, says clearly, fears in the room, consent not there. You know, we're fighting this whole consent defense now for break. It's our job in policing to show the context, the fear. This person is afraid, so afraid, they'll write a letter to the judge after they've been shot in Florida. Or they'll tell an officer in 1950, it's all right if you want to throw things on another. That's fear. That's my job to explain that as an officer. 
We also realize, as I said, this is course of conduct. This doesn't happen just once. This is the reason why we're not using the cycle of all. Fifty to sixty women. Right? So those misconceptions about sex assault, because we haven't studied it that carefully, lead to untested rape kits. I looked at the report. Bill Jays looked at Detroit, Memphis, other cities that had eight, nine, ten thousand untested rape kits. Reading the police reports, you can see it in the narrative of the police report. This victim can't be raped. In a police report, like, damn, what is that? This victim was drinking heavily intoxicated, right? So the kids were sitting on the shelf, not being tested. Came out in HBO's documentary, I Am Evidence. If you haven't seen it, brace yourself. Detroit's called 800 serial rapists so far. Now they're testing all their kids. Cleveland. 20 detectives in the DA's office in a cold case rape unit. They've got 100 serial rapists so far. Memphis police is in a major class action lawsuit right now, being sued by women who were raped, but the kits weren't tested, and the DNA of the kit who later went on to rape other women. Yeah, you see the problem here, right? Start understanding these crimes or have a myth and misconception about them. So um, we have to focus uh, carefully and not fall for these old myths about women lying. I got in hot water with the oil police, and they're still mad at me, I think. The local paper did an expose on New Orleans police and found out that they were locking up 50% women and 50% men in domestic violence cases. I never heard a number like that before. There are violent women, I've locked them up. But we're talking three, four, maybe percent. What are they saying? Why would they lock up so many women? They said they were equal opportunity arresters. Yeah. And I said, that's not crime analysis, uh, first. Second, um, you got a training problem with the police, or the possibility is we finally found that lost Amazon tribe of women right here in New Orleans. They printed that word for word in the paper, so New Orleans didn't call me back after that. I guess they're mad at me about that. But it's breaking through these myths as well, you know. Um, the old one that, you know, we fought for years of believing is, well, damn, why? Why you stay? You know, over and over again. And, you know, leaving is not a bit, it's a process. 
and that's the problem. Uh, so just like disclosure is a process, uh, disclosing your victimization can be a process. Not an easy thing to do to tell a stranger you've been raped or you've been victimized. Salem, Oregon, chief up there over a year period wanted to prove this to his officers, so he had all the patrol officers. When they went around, you know, have you ever been forced to do something of a sexual nature against your will? That was a, what he on the report. A random question, but it wasn't random. It's pretty focused. And he said, after a year, 80% of the DV victims in Salem, Oregon said they'd also been raped. 80. Well, we don't know the number, but CDC's put it at one in five. When you add that up, that's 32 million U.S. women. That's the entire population of Canada. Been raped or will be attempted rape in their lifetime. So we're just starting to see the big picture. And this is part of it, I think. Look at his crime correction. Um, we know why they don't report. We know we talked to our crisis line in Nashville, and they told us they don't call you first. They call us, but only after they've been assaulted five times. When you go to Canada and Ontario, they believe the number's 25. 25 times before they call the crisis line, not the Ontario Provisional Police. So this sets up a dilemma for police. You make it there for the first time. That's the first time for you, but this is not the first time for them. Our job is to find that context, find all that history that goes on. And it's not easy when you got a victim, you're still reluctant to tell you. Now you can't force people to tell you anything, but understanding the right way to do it is critical. You know, we've got a whole different method now, the trauma-informed interview technique that works very well with victims. About their experience, not not yours. Take your time. We'll talk about this as we go along today. Patience, open-ended questions. Can't remember? That's all right. You may be traumatized. And look, we know a lot about trauma today, and a big part because of police traumatization. Right? Our police psychologist told me, my agency, not this long ago, I was talking to her about this. I said. What you're thinking, you know, on traumatized law enforcement? She said, well, you know, trauma brings on PTSD. There's no doubt about it. When you look at the numbers of PTSD, different kinds of things like combat, car wrecks, domestic violence, sex assault. Domestic violence, sex assault are the two that produce more PTSD than combat. So trauma, you know, that's the vehicle. Picture that. Like Gabby Petito, did you watch her cry? You know she cried all the while the police were interviewing her. She cried, she cried, she cried, she cried, she cried. That's a clue somebody's being traumatized. Why not write that in the report? Write that in the report. That's trauma. And our police psychologist told me in Nashville, she said, you know, most citizens in their life will experience two to three major traumatic events that can bring on PTSD, but most average police officers in the country experience 100 to 130 traumatic events. Think about that one for a minute. So why are suicide rates so high in policing? Cops kill themselves more than suspects do. Now we've got wellness programs and critical incident debrief and psychological counseling, but my generation, my father's generation, come on. We all have one doctor, Dr. Uh, Jack Daniel, young Dr. Daniel. Yeah, he's from Lynchburg, Tennessee. 
He'll see any time. Just come on in. Right? That works for a minute. That's about it. Uh, now, uh, thank God we've got peer counseling inside police departments. It's a real problem for law enforcement. But think about that for a minute. Traumatized police, traumatized victims, they're humans. Um, so we know that they experience it. We know that this is part of the common characteristics of this crime. This is, by the way, this is not my list. This is a police chief list from all over the country. They say it's not an incident. It's course of conduct. So stop thinking about it as an incident. There's multiple concurrent crimes. There's trauma. And I, I'm gonna I'm gonna confess to something. I wish I hadn't this weren't true, but but it is. And I and I, I have apologized for it many times. I worked homicide in the 80s and 90s. Folks, police shot a lot of people in those years and before. This was this is before Garner. Tennessee versus Garner, the officer stole his case. He shoot fleeing felons. Police were shooting fleeing felons all over the country. My agency was no exception. We'd go to the scene as a homicide investigator. They'd be the young officer and would say, you know, tell me what happened. And they'd say, well, the guy was behind the counter. Pulled up the alarm. I confronted him. He had a gun. I fired my gun twice. He went down. And then you say, okay, there's a gun. There's a suspect. Clerk says the same, he was being robbed. Okay, so far so good. Like it was justified. And then he said, only fired twice, and the gun would be empty. You say, wait, wait, what what? No, think about that again now. No, I'm telling you, sir, I shot my gun twice. You say, no, you didn't. You emptied your gun, don't lie. Now you're gonna help you. I'm not lying, I'm not lying. We get from the chief. The chief would say, what's going on? Well, I can't believe my officers anymore. I said, chief, we don't know. So we wrote in their personnel file they were dishonest. Try to get a promotion after that. We were ruining officers' careers. And by the way, we weren't even given counseling for being involved in a shooting. That was another phrase. Life's a big deal. Get tough, right? They'd say. Now we know, and the Canadians, well, the first ones that realize this when you're traumatized you lay down your memories and fragments it's the, it's the neurobiology of trauma there's stress hormones that are released inside your body you have no control over them they can they, they affect you in so many different ways right and now police departments and this is probably true for you after police shooting the officer goes home you say go go home go home put your feet up Get, get an adult beverage, turn on, say yes to the dress. <laughs> I like that show. Whatever that thing is. Out of Get your mind off it, right? And then your memory will start to kind of fall back into place a little bit. That's two sleep cycles. Do we give a rape victim two sleep cycles? See, uh, that's the thing about trauma. So this is a common characteristic uh, of, of this case. Minimizing, we, we know minimizing is evidence. We don't ignore that. Drunk drivers minimize all the way through field sobriety tests. Every bit of their minimization goes in the report. I can tell you that. I've locked up a lot of drunk drivers. You don't just say the guy failed the field sobriety test. You explain how he did it. Sir, turn the motor off. No. Sir, turn the motor off. He turns it off. He's going to put that in the report. Step out of the car, sir. I think you've been drinking. Let me make sure you're okay. No, sir. Just 
Then they get out, they lean on the car. He says, okay, sir, walk back here to me, to the back of your car. And they slide along the car and they get to the trunk and they're trunk, they sit on the trunk, a trunk sitter. They say, sir, I need you to stand up. Oh, I'm really tired. Well, this won't take long. Can you walk that line hill to toe? Oh, no, I can't do that. Well, why not, sir? Well, I have a bone in my leg. <laughs> like, damn, you know, okay, bone in your leg. Can you count backwards 25 to 1? I'm not good at math. That's going in the report, right? They're minimizing. Or the biggest one is how much have you got to drink? I mean, two 55 gallon drums <laughs> with a hose coming out of the trunk. You know, we're not going to say happy motoring. You're going to go to jail. Uh, but they're going to, they're trying to stay out of jail. That's just the thing. What's going on tonight, sir? Hell, she's crazy. He said it in the body camera footage. You saw it, didn't he? Crazy. So let me let me water it down a little bit for you. So let me minimize it. Minimization against evidence. Underreporting is evidence. Delayed reporting is evidence. It makes perfect sense that somebody walks in and says, I need help. I'm being stalked. You say, when did it start? Instead of saying, why did you wait seven months? Tell me what you've been doing since it started. Why well, I changed my phone number. I don't, you know, I don't go to the Methodist Church anymore. I don't go to that Walmart. I don't go out late at night. I used to go to this club. I stopped going there. And that will do it. It will stop it. But it does now he's keeping following me. He just keeps doing it. So now I'm in trouble. So my countermeasures don't work. But instead of saying, okay, good, you've already tried, but it didn't work, that's going to be part of our evidence because we're going to show the substantial emotional distress in your case. We're going to show the repetitive nature of a stalker. We're going to do that. And we lay down our case file. And then we're going to go back to the suspender. So they're not going to stop. It's not what they do. They stalk because they stop. They stop because they can. That's a big one. There's other reasons. We know this. But I live in Nashville. Hell, you can't swing a dead cat. Well, any country star in Nashville. All of them have stalkers. All of them. I don't know how many Dolly Park stalkers we've locked up. Imagine that, right? So we looked at our murders, by the way. 80% of our murders had a stalking before the murder. This is not rocket science. Hell, all they got to do is just stalk the stalker. That's what we did. This is easy. This is the easy part of policing. I mean, how many billions of dollars are on drugs? You know what narcotics investigators do? They follow people, they watch them, they photograph them, they track their cars, they listen to them. They, this case where the woman says he's going to kill me. What are we waiting on here? This is pretty easy. All right, so going after stalker because we know why they do it. And then, by the way, there's all kinds of stalkers, and we've dealt with all of them. We locked up Hinckley in Nashville when he was talking to Jimmy Carter. A lot of people don't realize this. We caught him in our airport with three 22 caliber revolvers. That's the same gun he shot Reagan with here in Washington. His guns away from him. He probably would have shot Carter in Nashville. Carter left. Hinckley got out of jail and never came back until we saw him on television shooting the president at the Hilton. Secret Service came back and said, look at this. We got a photograph of Hinkley standing six feet from Jimmy Carter in Ohio. They 
He was like, you know, those, that taxi driver movie. I think it's part of where he got some of his ideas. Those people exist, but the ones that we deal with that's the most dangerous is somebody you're in a relationship with. Girlfriend, boyfriend. That serial nature of perpetrator is, is very, very important. They move on sometimes to another victim. Um, or another target. These are predators. As I said, trauma is a big part of this as well. And I could spend days talking about this, but I want to show you something. This is pretty graphic. And I don't mean to upset you, but this it's it's cleaned up a little bit, but not much you can do with this. It's, it was a CNN report of an officer in Miami, and I and this film is used for officer survival training, but I saw it and I thought, listen to the the way he's describing how he feels. Because when you're talking about trauma, it's about the victim's experience, right? Trauma informed means understanding that and then having the service that traumatized victim. But to hear it come out of the mouth of police officers is pretty interesting. So listen to this and we'll talk on the other side. On an October night in Miami, Racing in, jumps out of his car, hits the emergency shuttle to the gas pumps, then finds himself standing over a simmering time bomb, unsure if the gas tanks exploded. There would have been a massive chaos, and they would have thought it was terrorism. Who knows? They wouldn't have been able to talk to me because I would have been nothing but vaporized. Gutierrez tries stopping Dominic Jean with a taser, but it didn't work. Jean starts wildly trying to stab Gutierrez with a knife. And a screwdriver. It came from my throat and I blocked it. Gutierrez falls to the ground. Gene viciously swings at him more than 20 times. That was a fight to the death, and only one person was going to walk away from that. Gutierrez is stabbed about a dozen times, but he's able to briefly kick the man off just long enough to grab his gun, firing five times, killing Gene on the spot. I never heard the gunshots. Never heard. All I heard was the clinking of the shell casings hitting the ground. It all lasted less than 30 seconds, but dealing with the emotions hasn't always been easy. I felt like, um, like I failed. I, 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 I was, I need to know that I put up a fight, that I fought this thing. I don't know the collection of it. So that really do These days, Officer Gutierrez patrols the Miami airport alongside his hero. All right, so who are these guys ready to see? You. On an October night in Miami, Dominic Jean. All right, I want to stop. I think you got. Uh... On an October night in Miami, Dominic Jean right. tried setting fire to an 8,000 gallon underground storage tank at this time. So, when you listen to his story, he, he said, I, need, I, think, I feel like I failed. He didn't fail. Then he said, I need to know that I put up a fight. 
right? He didn't remember what happened. He, I think one of the things that was interesting, he said, I heard the shells clinking on the pavement, but I couldn't hear the gunshot go off. So this, what you're looking at here is fragmented memory. This is a good example of it. And, uh, and then he's, he's, you notice he's traumatized by telling the story again. I mean, this is obvious. You relive it, and that's what happens all. This is one of the reasons that uh, when we've got, when you got a crime victim like this, you don't want to interview over and over and over and over again. They're reliving it often. And then understanding that they may say, I can't identify some people. You know, a, a, a prosecutor friend of mine from Denver said they were in an interview room with a rape victim and a stranger rape. Taxi cab driver raped this young woman. The head of the room, the detective, they were doing the interview with her. And, you know, pretty straightforward, uh, you know, an interview. And he said, let's talk about the description. And she said, well, I, I can't help you. I, I don't remember what he looked like. And I, I can't tell you what he looked like. And the detective said, well, was he facing you? And she said, oh, yeah, he was facing me. But I can't tell you what he looked like. He thought, wait a minute. Okay, let me slow down a little bit. He said, okay, let's, um, what were you thinking while um, this was happening to you? Not a normal question, you know, a state of mind. And she said, well, I, I went somewhere. And he got it. He said, trying. Well, I left my body. Well, where did you go? She said, I sort of floated above everything as I watched it all happen, but I, you know, I tried not to look, I focused away. What were you focused on? She said, well, is it, did you smell something? Did you hear something? Did you taste something? Did you? Yeah, okay, good. So what was it, what color was it? It was just a beige color, you know, and anything different about it? She said, no. Oh, wait, she said, wait, it was ripped. There was a rip in it. It was a, a C-shaped rip in the headline. He put that out to patrol in the week they had the man in custody. Common form, asking the census, what else do I need? Where else do I need to go to get information? That, you know, this officer was explaining that he couldn't remember that he could hear certain things, certain things he couldn't. And I'm sure you've seen similar reactions of victims, car wrecks, robberies, not, it's it's not any different. The, the, the human brain reacts, right? So it doesn't matter who you are. Um, that fact that the, the victim brain and the perpetrator brain are actually different, though. And this is something that I've had long conversations with uh, psychologists about this brain science. You know, people are really, really smart now because I don't understand what's going on here. And, you know, they tell me over and over again, you know, when you get somebody who's a trained sort of, they've lived it, they've done an offender, they're not really, uh, we have tunnel vision. They don't, their heart rate's not pumping. They're not suffering from fragmented memory. They're very focused. And, you know, I've heard that over again. I think, wait a minute, I watched my stepfather do this. Pretty amazing. He was 6'2", 220. And I didn't think much of it then, but now I appreciate it. How good he was with this. He would step out on the front porch of our house. Of course, for our house, he started talking to the officers. It used to be two. 
He started talking to him. He started moving. And I knew what he was going to do. But he was just calm. He wouldn't, it didn't seem threatening at first. He was calm. He'd move around. He talked to the officers until he got to the right spot. Then he would attack two police officers. It was the most amazing thing to see. They were all focused and heart pumping and tunnel vision. I've not been there. Their brains were operating differently. Not him. Because he'd done it for a long time. He grew up in it. This is exposure as a child. This is you get used to this kind of thing. So it was a different kind of brain operation. I saw this very often. That the victim's brain is very defensive, but the offender's brain is a little bit different. And now we've got brain scientists that are explaining it all to us after all these years. It's like, you know, uh, I don't know if you all saw the LA bank robbery footage several years ago. Two guys robbed a bank in LA, helicopters flying above them on the street. They had body armor on, they were all armored up, they had assault rifles. They were shooting LA officers all over the place. They were walking around the street like they were just walking, walking a dog, right? Just walking around. The officers were all hiding and thought, wow, what's going on here? This is a career criminal. They don't get unfocused. They know exactly what they're doing. So there is a difference in the brain. We know that we miss crimes, and this is a shame of it all. These are mostly felonies, and it's a damn sin. Walk past a perfectly good unused felony, works hard for the misdemeanors. But the chiefs have said this we've been stalking and sex assault, kidnapping, weapons violation, witness intimidation. Yeah. We know they sometimes lead to this when you get hostage situations. And I was on SWAT team for 15 years in addition to my other duties in Nashville. 600 maybe responses over 15 years. And I can tell you, you learn a lot when you deal with domestics at this level because. The hostage is the problem. The problem is the hostage. Now you've got somebody who's holding someone hostage that they want to control or kill. And if you're not a good negotiator, you can get the hostage killed easily. And there's other things happening inside this crazy dynamic that's really important for police to understand, especially. Woman one night be held hostage in Nashville. Got the neighbors out, we lit up the house, we controlled the environment to a certain point. We lit the house up with spotlights. The negotiator called in, she picked up the phone, he wouldn't talk. So he was, you know, talking through her. That went on for an hour. Finally, they got him on the phone. Then all of a sudden, she appears at the front door. We're thinking he's either released her or she's escaping or he's gonna walk out and kill her. You know, you gotta figure this out. She walks out and we're thinking he's going to be right behind her. And we look and we're thinking, wait a minute, the door closed behind her. We thought she's by herself. She's free. Run, man, run, run, run to her voice. And she looked at us and went right back inside the house again. And we thought, what the hell is this? You know, then Stockholm syndrome is a whole nother thing. That's something else, right? He surrendered. We arrested him and we processed her. Debriefed her. And we said, thank God you say, no. Sorry, this happened to you. You got him in custody and he's going to jail. And he, you know, here's what got a, a big magnet advocate for you. But we just have to ask you a question. You, you know, could have run uh, about an hour in when you walked out, uh, but you went back in the house. Can you can you explain that to us? And she says, Oh, please. She says, I've been through this so many times. We said, Really? And we said, Man, we have never been here. We've never had response house before. And she said, oh, I know that because I've made sure you've never been here. 
this is the big one. And we said, I beg your pardon? She said, look, he brings that gun out, puts it to my head, and I've learned how to negotiate with my own release. A hostage is also a negotiator. Think about that for a second, right? And she said, so here's how I would do it. I wouldn't call my mother. I wouldn't get a protective order. I didn't take the kids. I didn't, you know, file charges. That was my bargaining chip. He put the gun away, but she said, you know, she said, a couple of times, you know, over the years that that didn't work. So I submit and he rapes me. So we, I mean, we, we're, we're just speechless. Um, and then she said, but you know, officers, my husband's not my problem. We thought, damn, really? Who is your problem? She said, you are. I was at a camera filming this. And she said, look, I knew how to survive without you. I didn't know how to survive with you. This is that negative and positive impacts of intervention. This is the thing that we miss sometimes. And we think, oh, you were the cops. Everybody's going to love us. And, you know, we're going to rescue you. That's not true for a lot of victims. And that was certainly true, true for her. So um, when you get to this level, there's a lot of history. And negotiators, I've watched them do it. I, I stood beside negotiators talking over a shield at people with guns on their family members. And when you're a negotiator, if you don't understand domestic violence better than anybody on your police department, you're in trouble. Because you can get somebody killed by not understanding the dynamics of it. And my, I have to tell you, my agency's got an incredible amount of negotiators. I never had the brain to do that kind of work. But I've been on the scene where our negotiators start this conversation with the offender saying, how you doing? My name's Joe. Uh, let's talk about your problems. And you're thinking, is he crazy? This guy's got a gun on his wife. But slow, but steady, but surely sort of hypnotic. And I have actually almost surrendered myself a couple of times to negotiators, you know, listening to it. You know, they say you can't hypnotize stupid people, but you can. And almost give it myself. Because they understood it. Domestic violence. Here it is, 75 to 90 percent hostage taken every year, taken during domestics. We've already talked about this. It's universal with this intimidation. My recommendation to police start today training your recruits on how to question victims about witness intimidation. Lay the foundation today. Go to your policy, write in your domestic violence policy that your police officers will ask witness intimidation questions at the start of a call. Has he ever threatened you to cooperate with the police? Has he ever threatened you to cooperate with the prosecutors? Has he ever promised you something if you don't cooperate? Has he ever assaulted you if you cooperate? That's the foundation for a felony charge of witness intimidation. Milwaukee charges 350 witness intimidation cases a year now. The prosecutors download the jail phone calls every morning, every morning. Easy peasy. Great way to make a case of witness intimidation. The chiefs also said the reason that we miss these crimes is a lack of training. You got to get back in the classroom. You gotta, I know, you know, a lot of us, you know, you go be strange. Oh, here we go, another domestic violence training. Okay, let's just hear maybe something different today. But you got to get back in the classroom. Communication, language barriers. We've already talked about some of these already. Minimization, personal police biases. The thing about communication, by the way, this is something that's critical for leadership and policing or anywhere where you work. I think now, I'm trying not to be controversial. I swear I'm not, but I think 
Because when you look at the crime victims, sex assault, child abuse, human trafficking, domestic violence, stalking, we're talking most often 90% or more of the offenders are male. I'm not anti-male. I'm just statistically correct, more politically correct. But if that's true, then don't you think that men have a special responsibility? I think they do. I, and I'm not trying to put them a burden on male cops or judges or prosecutors. I think it's time for us to take a little step forward. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, two young off the call room saying, well, hell, you know how these women are. They walk into police stations lying all the time about being raped, trying to get some man in trouble. I've heard that before. Now, here's your challenge as a leader in law enforcement. And say, wait a minute. Let me talk to you about that. What did I just hear you say? You heard you say that half the population lies to the police about sex assault? Where did you get that? And by the way, if you feel that way about half the population, why don't you want to be a police officer? Why don't you want to come here and work for us if you have that kind of prejudice or bias or stereotype about anybody in your community with, with the police? Now, if you don't stop and confront that, that behavior all of a sudden becomes a standard for your police department. And I can name you a dozen police departments that I've looked at carefully where that's happened. I spent a year and a half looking at Chicago police for the, for the Civil Rights Division at Justice. I couldn't believe what I was listening to. In, in Chicago, they got great officers in Chicago, but there was a culture inside the Chicago Police Department when their own police officers were raping their wives, they did nothing about it. Louisville now is under the microscope. Phoenix is under the microscope. We know what happened in Baltimore. Philadelphia's got an ombudsman who sits in the office with a sex crimes investigator so they won't throw the reports in the trash can. This is now this is reality, right? But so leadership in law enforcement means communicating inside your agency with your fellow officers and how you feel about crimes committed against women. And then what is your message as a leader? Every chief, every sheriff should stand at a podium like this and say, let me tell you what we're doing here in Alexandria about violence against women, or Sterling, or Rono, or Richmond, or Chesapeake or any of the cities in this state, here's what we feel about it. It's pretty easy to do. So communication is one of the big ones that we miss sometimes. My agency missed it. I, I remember the first time I told my police department that I was a survivor of domestic violence. I, I was scared to do it at first. I never told anybody before. I got my mother's permission. I set up a roll call with some of our commanders in our police department. I said, let me tell you what happened to me when I was growing up. That's why I'm in policing. I got in policing because of domestic violence. I told them about my stepfather beating my mother to two miscarriages. Pushing out of a speeding car, 60 miles an hour, watching from when I was seven. Taking my stepfather's bottle of wine from his nightstand, filling it up with poor bug spray, trying to kill him. Didn't work. Lived. Told him all that. And after I finished telling my story, and I said, this is why I got into policing, because we got to do something about this. Three of the chiefs at my agency came up and said, we've been there, we've been there. I'm thinking, damn, we got a lot of survivors in policing. Let's talk about it. Let's communicate it. And that's one of the things that the chiefs across the country have said, too. How are we communicating? Are we not? 
And then the last thing here is the impact. When you miss these crimes, here's what happens. Obviously, violence escalates. Officer safety is compromised. By the way, let me just say this about officer safety compromise. That film I showed you from the 50s when the police were calling domestic violence family trouble, these offenders were killing U.S. police officers. DV offenders have been killing U.S. police officers since we've had U.S. police officers. And this is something, I, it's always been a curiosity to me. If you, and obviously, a lot of you have been in the Memorial in Washington. It's close by. I've got, I got a lot of friends on that wall up there. A lot of them killed on domestics. How long has that been going on? Forever. Why are we connected the dots here? You all saw Ashley Gwendolyn's case several years ago here in Virginia. Marine, guy of the Marine Corps, joined the police department, went through the academy, sworn in on Friday, killed on Saturday by a domestic violence event. But we know they've been killing police officers for a long time. First one we lost, 1875, DV offender. Why haven't we talked about that? And then, Liability issues come up, and yes, police do get sued. These cases later on today, I'm going to show you a little about liability. We'll talk about civil liability and how that happens to your agency. Recidivism, revictimization. So this is what happens when we miss these crimes. Yeah, this is our first officer we lost in Nashville. Frazier killed on a domestic 1875. So by the way, same zone I learned how to police in over 100 years later. Nobody told me about this, by the way. I, I stumbled across this just reviewing officer deaths in Nashville. I thought, why wasn't this brought to me in the academy? Why didn't somebody in my police academy say, by the way, now the most dangerous call you respond to has always been the most dangerous call you respond to? It's a domestic violence offender. In this case, they broke the guy out of jail and lynched him. Stopped doing that a few years ago. That's the way things used to be in those years, right? Here's Ashley Gwendolyn's case. Prince William County, sworn in on Friday, killed on Saturday. Westerfield, Ohio, two officers shot off the doorstep. I mean, we're seeing multiples now. Six officers shot in South Carolina, five shot in Pleasanton, Texas, three killed in Birmingham, three killed in Pittsburgh. They're killing multiples now. We're seeing multiple officers killed by the defenders. I mean, this would be like the top of the list for sheriffs and police chiefs. They should be standing on a soapbox yelling about this. So, and I'm nudging them. I'm doing my best to nudge them. Five shot and pleasant. Real quick about this, and we'll take a break. I talked to one of the officers in this case. I said, I need to understand how this happened. Thanks, Tudyk from Pleasant PD. He said, Mark, he said, this guy, there was red flags everywhere on this case. He said he was driving down the road with his wife in the car. And he was hit in the face, and motorists called it in. Two of the deputies from the sheriff's office were close by. They got behind him. They pulled him over. They saw him do it. They got him out. They did a field interview. They didn't need her cooperation, so they arrested him. And then she, they asked her, can you tell us what's going on? She says, I have nothing to say to you. They took him down to the jail. They told the sheriff. This is a country sheriff's office. And the sheriff said, wait a minute. He's hitting her in public? And... He doesn't care about the consequences, and she's not talking, even though you said you saw him do it. He said, this woman is in extreme danger. So they assigned her a deputy. She said, don't ever call me again. I don't want to talk to any of you. He bonded out of jail. And about a week later, he's back at this residence. 
He's walking down the street in this neighborhood, firing an assault rifle in the air, and nobody called the sheriff. And I, you can't blame these neighbors. They didn't want to shoot through their house. This is why neighbors sometimes will call on loud music, but they won't call on domestic. So they didn't call. The sheriff said, if we just known this, things would have been different. So they did it. They got a secondary call and locked him up again for another domestic. This time, the wife says, you know what? I'm ready to go to shelter. Took her to shelter. Friend bought him out of jail. Friend says, I don't need your wife's not at home. The sheriff took her somewhere. So he said, let's just go to the gun store. He walked into the gun store and his friend bought it. 400 rounds of ammunition. Dropped him off at the house, made a false call to Pleasanton. Sheriff definitely going to St. Mont Stevenson. He's already out of the house. He's on the other side of the street. Kills both of them. DPS trooper, Robert Miller, shoots him through the windshield. Border Patrol agent neighbor runs out, shoots him in the left arm. Two that gets saved. A block down the street, two said, Mark, I got way away from the house, but I didn't want to get shot. I'm trying to figure out what to do because I'm the only one on duty. He said, I'll look up, and then five feet from me, there he stands with a gun. He crawled on his belly, a city block, snuck up on me, and shot me through my right arm and blew my right arm off. So I got one arm in. Yeah. He said, I got to try to get my gun out. Passing out, only ready to call for help. San Antonio's flying in the SWAT team. Helicopter flew him out, saved his life, him and the Border Patrol agent. And, he, and you know, we talked about this. He said, you know, nobody asked any legality questions about this guy. He was showing us all the red flags, but we were just kind of waiting for it to happen. And it happened. Five officers shot, three killed. They said it's a miracle. More weren't killed. This is a domestic violence. Again, taking away something that belonged to him. This is what they think. This is what happens if you see these man shooting. You know, one of the things that happened to me last time I was in San Antonio back in April, and we were doing an interrogation class for the police department. And the lieutenant academy at the break walked up, and because I mentioned Sutherland Springs, y'all know the Sutherland Springs case where the guy walked into the church and killed 24, 25 people on Sunday services with an assault rifle that he was not supposed to have. Because he was convicted of domestic violence while he was in the Air Force. And the Air Force failed to tell the FBI or anybody else. So he walked in the gun store and bought the rifle, walked in the church and started gunning everybody down in the church, right? I, I said, Lieutenant, I said, you remember that church? He said, yeah, that's my church. What outside San Antonio? I said, were you there? He said, no, I had duty on Sunday. If I'd been there, I carried a gun to church. Now think about that for a second. He wears a gun to church. I said, you're the only one. He said, oh, no, the church is full of guns. But he got the drop on his congregation. So now we see these mass shootings, right? about a third of them now, are domestic related. Every time I see a workplace violence shooting, I just wait. You know, give it about an hour or so, and then you'll come around, you'll hear it. Domestic, domestic, domestic related. So, now, I don't, I'm not, I don't want you to have the impression that every domestic violence offender is a mass killer. That's not what I'm saying here. But if they're using violence, they're dangerous. And they do show us the red flags. You know, the way to defeat this, and I've always believed this, is the collective. It's harder for an offender to trick you versus a singular person. And, and this is the beauty of CCR. This is the beauty of having a, a coordinated response where you're all on the same sheet of music, all talking about. So there is a solution to this. It's not helpless. Now, got more, but I've gone over a little bit. I, I'm trying to gauge my trainings here. So let's take 10. We'll come back. 12 o'clock is our lunch break. Let's take 10, come back. We'll do about 30 minutes, then we'll take a lunch break. Thanks.
Let me check in with you again here. So, uh, are we still okay? So, let me know now uh, if, if we get off track. I have a tendency to wander a little bit. So, uh, I want to make sure I'm still on track with you here. Um, so, uh, you know, I mentioned stalking earlier, and one of the things that we noticed, and I, I come from a jurisdiction that works 30 stalking cases a month, and um, one of the odd things we noticed about stalking is you don't have, you don't think about this much until you really get into these cases, is that who else is helping the stalker? You know, uh, they have these confederates, I call them, that kind of hand work with you. Um, I've, been, I've actually investigated a couple of police cases where, um, yeah, and I, part of my duties in the police department was to manage officer-involved domestic violence cases. And um, we investigated, we arrested, prosecuted police officers. Not every day, but, you know, I never had fewer than 12 active cases on my desk at one time. And what I noticed about stalking cases sometimes is how these offenders will rope and the partners drive by her house and shine a light to see if she's okay. Let me know who's how. Is there a car in the driveway? That's in your zone on the side of town. Can you tell me who's in that driveway? This is what happened with Richard Brain, by the way, in Tacoma, police chief, and he stalked his wife and killed her, committed suicide in uh, Gig Harbor, just outside Tacoma. I, I framed them, from the police. It was a $75 million lawsuit after Moran killed, killed himself. It was interesting to watch, though, how the offender could manipulate an ethical, honest law enforcement officer to help them out with stalking. But if you think about it, if you're an offender, it doesn't matter if you're a judge or prosecutor or, you know, a politician, you know how to manipulate people and you use your powers of manipulation. And, you know, I've seen it one-on-one, -on -one. You, you get out of your car and you walk up to the house and the front door opens up and he steps out on the front porch and meets you in the front yard, got a big smile on his face, got his hands stick out and shake hands with you like he's a real estate agent. And they say, oh, officer, uh, I'm really sorry you all were called out here tonight. I, I, I'm embarrassed by this. You know, my wife and I, we had a long talk. We got it all worked out. <clears throat> you can go ahead and leave. But before you go, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate what you all do down there at the sheriff's office. Uh, I voted for your sheriff twice. Uh, I support him. He's a good, he's a good man. Uh, I thought about being deputy myself years ago. That sound familiar? Sometimes you can't see it sneaking up on you. It's that kind of subtlety about it, about how these offenders will do it. Um, or I've had cases where um, really top performer in law enforcement, top cop, no doubt about it, anybody was willing to work with, but they were going home and beat the hell out of their family members. But how much crime do you want your cops to commit? You know, basic question.
Yeah, it's a natural thing uh, that there's behaviors of non-criminals. Um, you know, if, if you look at something like a puzzle, put, the, put the pieces together is the critical part of it. But what we know about the years is that, and this is not prosecutor's fault, but this is just something that happens, they'll often pull pieces of it out of prosecutor's language to it's more speedy. Let's do the vandalism. Let's do the theft. Let's do the harassment. Let's not bring it all together. It takes practice. You have to practice it. Um, and then what will happen is that you'll, you'll stop it from going to the end result. That's why homicides are so critical. When we looked at our murders, we thought talking, 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 talking. It all started out as misdemeanor that ended in murder. So, you what you're doing now, I know you work in homicide. You're in the homicide reduction unit now, really. Um, and you gotta uh, sit down with the prosecutor and talk about. As a trooper, sergeant, talking to a woman in Columbus, Ranger, she went in to report it, internal affairs in Columbus. They pulled him in, started an investigation. She got scared and dropped out, so they moved him to over year student. Uh, they promoted him to lieutenant, and and he started stalking another one. It's the Ohio State Police. He started stalking another one, trying to try to stop. Um, I think he was on. Wait, I may be wrong about this, but you know, Oklahoma City just sent one of the officers to prison for 283 years, pulling off black women and raping black women after he got off duty. He picked black women because they believe he didn't think they were poor. This, look at, when you look at predation, this is what it is. I'm a predator. I'm going to find that weak. It's like the system. Anyway, so the sheriff called me and said, you take a look at some of this, and what had happened, this woman told the sheriff, I know he's a state trooper, but he, he, everywhere I go, he's there. I don't know. He knows where I am. He pulls me over. He's asking me out. The sheriff uh, looked at her van, and under the front bumper was a really sophisticated uh, GPS tracking system. Military-grade battery, the whole thing was pretty sophisticated. Now, you couldn't buy that kind of equipment 15 years ago. Today, Amazon will get you anything you want, um, including a drone to go along with. I mean, it's like, damn, what is it me? So they got their search warrant together, went to his house, knocked on the door. He came in full of uniform, and he said, oh, you've got it. They went in, and on the screen was the mapping system. You can also buy the gold with the GPS system. So you're right. Technology makes it easy. We shouldn't uh, ignore lawyers. You mentioned that too, because lawyers, you know what they, 
sometimes turn into, right? It's interesting, uh, the Boyer cases that we worked over the years, some of these people will actually give it up. And you'll say, do you know this woman? No. Why are you looking at her paper? What at 11 o'clock at night? Well, look, I, I saw her at the supermarket. I, I, I liked her. I, I followed the car. I jumped in my park. I followed her home. I realized she lived alone. I came back the next night. Parked across the street. The last, next week I came back, you know, and now I'm looking at them. So that's surveillance. So all of them do similar things. I know the psychologists have got, they wrote volumes about love obsession and simple obsession and glottomania and all that. I, that's great. But for an investigator, they're all kind of doing some of the same thing for a different reason. So um, don't give up on misdemeanors. Um, those are your murders and waiting. It's the pathway part. I've always told that. Uh, which means, you know, you got to have a plan. I mean, I, I think there is just a separate policy just on stalking, how we're going to stalk the next. That means training your dispatchers, training everybody to understand the nature of stalking. Don't, don't give up on it. Um, I've got some resources. There's a, a National Stalking Resource Center here in Virginia called um, SPARCS, S-P-A-R-C. It's the, don't ask me to do the acronym, but I'm sorry. But it's run out of Equitas. Equitas is a national prosecutors resource organization based here in Virginia. A lot of Virginia prosecutors now run it. It's a it's really interesting group of prosecutors. We train prosecutors on everything. They now house the SPARCS, S-P-R-C, talking um, center. Here's one, too, you might think about. Um, the folks at the University of Kentucky came up with a risk assessment for stalking. It's called SHARP, Stalking and Harassment um, Assessment. Got close. <laughs> I got close. I'm not quite, but it's, it's, it's SHARP. And if you put SHRP, uh, Stalking Assessment, in the Google machine, what will happen will probably take you to the University of Kentucky, and it's a 43 question internet based questionnaire actually designed for advocates working with stalking victims. But what it'll do, this is Dr. Logan's creation. The Taiwanese police, Singapore police, uh, some European police departments using it now. And what it is, you load in the profile of the stalker, it will give you the, the how to deal with the victim, and it'll give you a profile on the kind of stalker they are, the dangerousness of the stalker. And, and by the way, you know, these, these kind of assessment tools like LAP or Vera or Sarah or Safer, any of these worldwide uh, tools, the reliability is in the numbers of cases they use the data. This Campbell did, Jack uh, Campbell did Johns Hopkins, which designed the LAP. It really wasn't a police assessment. It was designed primarily for mental health workers. Um, some of you, years ago, Mark, many have heard about a case called the Terrasol case, where a guy was in therapy out in UC Davis, California. He said, I'm going to leave here to kill this woman. And they didn't warn anybody, he killed her. Mental health said, we have a duty to warn. How are we going to do this? So Dr. Campbell started working on a 20 questionnaire for mental health. Police in Maryland saw it and said, hey, 
this is interesting. Um, how do you use this? So Dr. Campbell and Maryland police got together and gave creation to LAP. So I think in the LAP there's a stalking question. Um, and then Dr. Logan in Kentucky took that and expanded to 43 questions and it's internet based. So try, try that. If you can't find it, just drop me a line on it. Um, so and by the way, so this is stalking by proxy. This is the next thing you might see. This is a father-in-law that followed his daughter-in-law into court in, in uh, Delaware, shot her in the uh, killed her in the, in the, the front of the metal, uh, metal detector, shot her friend, killed her, and he was shot in a gunfight inside the courthouse. So courthouses are the hot spots, and I'm not trying to scare any of you, please, this is not what I'm here to do, but I just want to kind of give you an idea of all of your places where the victim will go, probation office, prosecutor's office, shelter, police station, church, wherever the victim goes, there has to be some sort of assessment for risk. Um, I'm sorry, it's that way. Um, this is where the offender will go. And um, they'll come on sometimes. So, um, and this, by the way, this is David Adams' book, Why Are They Kill? I want to go, uh, I don't make any money off this. I'm just, I think it's a great book because it really gets down into the mindset of a, a domestic violence offender. Um, I want to spend just a few minutes talking about this. I, this is a smaller piece of a bigger class that I teach in officer's Bible. But there's a guy named Richard Johnson, who's a psychologist, is a cop turned psychologist, now a professor, who does research over in Ohio. It's done some unbelievable research on who these offenders are for police. Uh, and you can see uh, 1980 to 2005, 157 officers killed on domestics. Um, and four of those officers, friends of mine, um, and we studied them as well. Uh, what Johnson has done is he's, he's looked at the distances the shots were fired, the kind of guns, who the offender is, how, how much likelihood they're to destroy their own property versus the victim's property, whether the officer may be assaulted or not. He's got an incredible amount of research, and if you want it, let me know and I'll send it to you if you're in law enforcement. Because we know a lot about these offenders now, uh, a lot more than we did when I first started policing, alcohol, not mental illness is a bigger problem. Um, day shift is more risk than night shift uh, because they can see you, obviously. So, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this other than to say that Johnson studied the character. Um, and we should learn from him. Uh, and and as if you're a law enforcement supervisor, we want to talk about this after lunch a little bit. We have to be sure that as leaders, as mentors to young women and young men in policing, that they don't fall into that trap that so many of us do in policing, where after a while, you think you know these people. It's such a deadly thing. It's tombstone mentality. And let me give you a quick example. I don't want to go too far off base here. You go to a home Monday, then you're there Wednesday, then you're there twice on Thursday, maybe one on Saturday, and then the Sunday detail picks it up and says it. Damn, this is number six for the week. And then you hear the officer say, I don't need backup. I'll take care of this myself. Then they pull in the driveway. And now you're rescuing a police officer. And then you want to ask the officer to freeze frame this for a minute. Why 
are you getting so many calls to this address in a shorter period of time? Some might say, well, you know, they're always fighting. No, well, they are, but now we're going, police are being called. Why are you there? Somebody used violence. Why would somebody use violence more in a shorter period of time? What do you think? They're escalating. Why are they escalating? That could be part of it, the police are called, but there's some motivation for the violence that you're using. Pretty surgical in my use of violence. Why do you offend to say that? Why would I hit you more in a short period of time? You're leaving. This is it, you're leaving. Three quarters of the officers killed on domestic violence calls are killed when the victim's trying to leave. By the way, the advocates, y'all know this number very well. This is where the victim is the most often killed. This is the most deadly time for everybody. Now, this is not every case, but the ones where we see death, that's what's going on. So I tell you, tell my young officers, you don't know the dynamics going on right now. Don't minimize this to where you get yourself killed, where you think you know these people. Because we've studied frustration of policing. There's been studies on law enforcement frustration policing, domestic violence calls. We, we have to talk about this. This is because if we don't, you know, we, we get these shortcut calls. All you have to do is look at the police department and look at how much time they spent on a drunk driving case. Misdemeanor with a potential killer, two to three hours. Domestic violence call, 10 minutes. This is what we have to talk about in policing. What's going on here? Well, they're frustrated. Tell me why you're frustrated. Well, the victim won't cooperate. Why is the victim not cooperating? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's because they're in fear. What else are you upset about? Well, the courts. Well, the courts don't give me what I want. Well, have you looked at your quality of your work? Have you talked to the prosecutor? Have you tried to analyze this? Have you worked on your own frustration? Because if you don't, you're gonna get hurt. Somebody else is gonna get hurt. I mean, this is, I know this is kind of like inside baseball with policing, but this is a big deal. I mean, and we see it by the way, not with just police. Hell, everybody gets compassion fatigue. But am I wrong about that? I mean, hey, look, my, my wife for years, she come on, she's a police psychologist, started her own program, Work with women for years. She come home someday. She say, "I hate every woman on the planet." I said, "Why? Why? What are you talking about? You're the advocate." She said, "Don't argue." I said, "Okay, I'm not arguing." <laughs> I'm not arguing. Then she come home someday. She say, "I love every woman on the planet." This is another thing too. I think we have to be able to do is vent to one another and keep an eye on one another because if we don't, you know, this is when you'll have burnout. This is it's not good. Right, it's bad, bad. And it can happen because there's a lot of emotional labor in the work you do. And that's one of the reasons I like to come to these trainings, not so much to be here to talk to you for hours, but to watch you at the breaks all hanging out with one another. I haven't seen you in a while. How's that case going? How are you doing? See you Christmas, right? So taking care of yourselves is a big part of this as well. I just, again, I just wanted to, Talk about that for a second and then risk assessment. I mean, I understand you all are doing the LAP and, and, I, and I'm glad you're doing it. Please don't stop doing it. Um, the Lee Valley Assessment Program out of Maryland is a good model. It's about looking the likelihood of future violence. In Maine, all the officers by law are being taught the ODERA model, the Ontario Domestic Risk Assessment. Um, I like ODERA. Uh, I like LAP. I like both of them. ODERA. Canadians created just for police response. 
It wasn't a mental health assessment. They have researchers say, we're going to study law enforcement in Canada. Here's what we want them to do. Because we want to be able to determine, this is what they said, and figure out if we can, well, if we can tell you when the next assault's going to occur. And I, when I was in Ontario for Academy, I thought, I, I listened to their researchers. I said, what? you telling me that you can teach a patrol officer how to determine whether the person's going to be assaulted next? He said, yeah, we do it all the time. I said, no, you don't. I said, yeah, yeah, we'll show you. So they showed me their Odermo. And this is why every officer Maine's using Wisconsin, Northern California, Minnesota. I'm watching Odera roll out. It's pretty interesting. There's another one now in Arizona. It's a community-based risk assessment that the Arizona Supreme Court has ruled that that assessment can be used in court. It's so reliable. So you see what's happening here. The science of risk, danger, lethality assessment is quick. We've done it for years. The Secret Service are really the masters at it. Now police are using it for domestic violence cases. Yeah. So, there you, you're in a VIP and you use Odera. Well, with, with Odera, let me see if I've got this here. With Odera, here are the Odera questions. What they did with, uh, when they designed it, it's a two part process. Patrol officers gather the information in the field. But when you look at these questions, no. Asking the victim in jail for 30 days or more, right? Don't you know? I mean, it's something you know they can know. And they said, Oh, yeah, we're validating the answers and the credibility from the victim by asking them questions we already know the answer to partly. But then we added that bad pregnancy, right? This goes up in domestic. This is why I tell police officers, when you got a pregnant victim, let's just we'll talk about risk assessment later, but right now, pregnant victim. That victim needs to go to the hospital. You need the paramedics to talk to them because offenders focus their, focus their violence on the fetus. That's why a lot of states have viable fetus law because of domestic violence. And um, you can't see it. I mean, that's why the, uh, the baby doctor has to have the, what is the thing, the, not, not, uh, yeah, sonogram, not a fish finder, but it's close. I mean, <laughs> a, little, a little bit more expensive, too, I understand. But you can't see the fetal fractures, the ruptured placentas, things like that, so you can't see it. But it's a great question to ask um, in uh, assessment. It tells you a lot about officer substance abuse. Is this your child with them, or is it someone else's child? That uh, is, a, is, a, is a big one. Um, more than one child, confinement or kidnapping, false imprisonment. And so what they do with it after they've done that, then they'll take it. And they, they, they've got another screening device called a Domestic Violence Risk Assessment Guide. They'll run it through that. They strain it. When they strain it, then it gives you the possibilities of next assaults. Under, it's really pretty amazing. So I would imagine for Bill, because you're, you're trying to look at reoccurring violence, that would be a pretty good one to look at. Um, I don't know why you couldn't. I mean, I, but the interviews with the victim in this case, right? Why can't you get the police reports in a VIP program? 
So it's a So, but they're not giving you the points report. Right. Both are counted. Oh, yeah, that's not good. You know, there are counties all over the country that give their daily give their police reports to the domestic violence shelters. So that it is that obviously you know you got to yeah. So that well it, you know this is we had a veterans intervention program starting eighty five and I used to go and just listen because I wouldn't understand the. That's the Duluth model, 26, 52 weeks. And I want to understand what it was all about. And our agency cooperated would give them all the information they need because you know what the offenders will do. They're going to try to pull you along until you figure them out. The police framed me. I didn't do it and all that. Police report helps you cut through that. So, and certainly a risk assessment. I mean, what you're doing is dangerous. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, you know that. Is your home okay? Hmm? Well, I mean, no, it is. It, I mean, it, this this is why you got to be on the, you got to have a quick safety plan for the police to get to you if they can. I mean, this is hopefully the other, sometimes the other people, the group is stop violence, but that's, you can't bank on that. I think there's a good model. Uh, there's one that probation uses around the country called Sarah. It's a spouse abuse risk assessment. It's not bad. Um, you know, um, Illinois, uh, they've got a law in Illinois. It's a Cindy Bishop law. Young woman was killed and probation's tagging, um, uh, stalkers now with GPS trackers. I mean, I'm sure I know for sex offenders, you're probably doing some sex offenders. They're using the stalkers now. Um, the whole Vine program, are y'all using the Vine program? You know, Vine came out of Jefferson County, Kentucky. Uh, Mary Byron murdered um, after the guy got out of jail with no notification. And um, the family went to a computer engineer in Louisville and said, can we design something? Um, and he was, he was a refugee from Vietnam. And he basically created the Vine system. That's used worldwide all over the country. Um, so um, the whole field of risk assessments now kind of opening up to the police because police now are involved in it. Um, I, I was talking to some cops up in New England who are trying to convince the LAP people to put sex assault questions inside the LAP, which I think is a smart, smart move. Um, like the guy did in uh, Salem, actually adding it in. Because sex assault's a big one. And we're not asking the victim's questions. So, um, so, so there's Ontario. It's the Ontario uh, domestic assault risk assessment and uh, i've got a ton of information there if you'd like to know let me know i'll send it to you y'all y'all remember the yardley love case i'm sure um the family it's interesting you know how this happened this happens all over the country family members start foundations start programs start via this so the one love foundation is a pretty good one they uh looked at young women 16 to 24 and said, let's find a way so they could gauge their own risk and lethality. So they came up with uh, one you can download from Google Plus or iTunes for free. I believe this is in here.
Love Foundation would have been impossible to ignore relationship violence. Based on research undertaken at the Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing, this app helps victims, friends, and family make an assessment and determine the threat. It's anonymous, free, and can save lives. You want for change. Blame one love. So it makes sense, you know, uh, you know, it's the same basic LAP risk assessment. But when you download it into the building, uh, it recognizes the locator in your phone. So then the first screen of the app is all of your local services, police department, right crisis center, domestic violence program. And it works so well in Pittsburgh, it's now a world, it's a nationwide now. So you can go anywhere in the country and download are you safe? And what it does, this is what the uh, and they use LAP. Uh, I think. 90% of Pennsylvania is in LAP now. They said there are a lot of victims that when you ask them, do you mind if I ask you some lethality questions? They they don't want to do it. To give them a piece of paper is one thing, they'll throw it away, but to say, look, I'll give you an app, you can download it, you can take it later to see what you think. And a lot of victims are okay, they're, they're doing it. And the thing about the LAP, especially in Pennsylvania, is the numbers of victims going to shelter? This is a whole nother. This is a whole nother class. I, I, I get the numbers from the state coalition because I'm. I want to see the impacts of what victims do when the officers on the scene. Like, yes, I will talk to an advocate. Here's the phone. Here's the advocate. that in like a third or more of the murder victims had actually contacted the police before the murder, but only like 4% had ever reached out to advocates. And you would think it'd be the other way around, but no, with, with murder cases, they're talking to the, the police when they are advocates. So to bring them together is what you've done with your LAP here. It's just a perfect combination. But anyway, William Gay Steeler, his mother was killed. Uh, now he promotes the RU Safe around the country. I'm William Gay of the Pittsburgh Steelers. I lost my mom to domestic violence. If you know someone who's in an abusive relationship, please don't be afraid to help. Let them know they can download a free Are You Safe app to determine if they're in a dangerous situation and connect them to their local domestic violence hotline. The help of Are You Safe app, you just might save someone's life. Okay. So, uh, and I know I, I, you're drinking out of a fire hose. I got it. I'm, I'm giving you a lot of stuff to think about. So, I want to, after lunch, I want to kind of focus down on women's use of force. Um, what resistant violence looks like, uh, what situational violence looks like, um, understanding self defense. Um, 
because I, you know we've had these moments over the years, and I'll give you one quick quick example. When I was a patrol sergeant five years, and I had an inner city district, so they'd send all these young coplings out to me to train, you know. And we'd get these young folks, um, college degree, year-long training program, and I turned one of those young officers uh, uh, by himself one night, uh, hit back up, but he answered this domestic violence call. When I got there, just to check on them, I just want to make sure everything's all right. I looked at the back seat of the patrol car, and there was the husband and wife, uh, both under arrest in the same patrol car on a domestic. So, so you know, some of y'all probably work with supervisors and just rave hell, scream, and you know, do it because I said so. I, that's easy to do. But I thought I won't make it a teachable moment, you know. So I just took a deep breath. I said, "What have you got?" And this young officer, who by the way now one of our captains, said. I couldn't figure it out, so I thought the best thing to do is just lock everybody up. So I started getting weak a little bit. I started seeing spots, you know, and I thought I'm, I'm going to pass out because I could, I could see myself in a deposition, you know, in a lawsuit. And so I unarrested some people. So that's not in written down anywhere. So if you're unarresting people, I recommend, you know, first of all, you take the handcuffs off and then maybe a back rub and maybe a cup of coffee. It's like, damn, don't sue me. You know, so. <laughs> this was an honest police officer saying, I thought I was doing the right thing by locking up both parties. And at that moment, I realized it's not his fault. You do what you're trained to do. goes on in these moments when people are physically fighting we just didn't do a good job we didn't understand we didn't explain self-defense is the same for you as it is for a citizen we didn't explain any of that so when we come back from the break we'll talk about that a little bit and then i want to spend some time on modern leadership uh and what it looks like and then i'll, I'll i'd like to spend a little time with you around liability and i don't i, I don't make it dry but because it's, it's not um, I've spent a lifetime talking to litigators who have made a living suing police successfully. Uh, um, I, I want to share with you law, modern law enforcement and violence against women and domestic and violence and that'll fill out our day. So, but I'm going to turn it over to Josephine and uh, I think lunch is on his way. So we'll see you back here in a little bit. Check it back in, you know, with you to make sure uh,
and um, not only do they offer resources, they'll do they'll work with you. If you've got a tough case you're working on, especially the more online cases. Um, the technology, as I said earlier, is getting more complicated. I know we, we've been we've seen spoofing. That's that's something that's been around for a while. Um, and if you haven't seen the spoofing websites, anybody can pay for it. They have to change names or change your voice if you want to change your voice. I know it's crazy. Um, but the technology is becoming a bit of a problem. And the the Sharp S H A R P is the forty three question web based risk assessment. Take a look at it. Go to Sharp. You have to go to coerciontroldout. This is the I think the University of Kentucky's behavioral science unit. Uh, they do a lot of work in stalking. So um, I think it, it's just spot on. I've used it a couple of times in cases, and it's pretty pretty accurate. Gives you a pretty good idea of who the stalker is and how to deal with it. So um, I wanted to spend a little time on um, dominant, predominant, primary, resistant violence, just a little bit of time. This is kind of a controversial topic, especially with police. So let me tell you uh, what happened with us in Nashville, not to where the, you know, the cat's meow, by no means. But um, we had a pretty good relationship with advocates and the in a meeting with the shelter, um, the shelter director uh, told me that we have a problem. I said, what's wrong? She said, um, your officer is arresting victims. I said, okay, how do you know that? Uh, and she said, well, a lot of our victims are coming to us at the emergency shelter from the holding booking, the booking room. I said, well, I, I don't know how you can get that from arresting victims and said, we've been interviewing these women and we're hearing some interesting stories about how they got arrested and so it's okay I'll take a look and, and we did and it was true um, so we started breaking apart the probable cause and we saw it and I, I, I kind of give you an example of this um, um, so you're on duty. I'm going to deputize you all for a minute. So you're on duty and you're working and um, you hit a red light. And while you're waiting at the light, this guy walks out in the middle of the street, a busy intersection, start directing traffic in front of your patrol car. So and they don't work for the city or county, so you, you got to get them out of the street. So you hit your light, you call it in, you step out of your car and you say, hey, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come here. We'll do that. Take a robber. Step out of the street. And he starts towards you and he gets about 20 feet away and his fists come up. Now he's coming at you. Now what do you do? Deputy, what do you do? What's your move? What's reason? Try to what? Try to de-escalate. That's good. We get that's a good thing. The escalation's good. So what does that what does that look like? He's coming at you. What do you say? Stop. Stop. Now what do you do? What about you, Deputy? Do we need to use a taser? 
So you're going right to electricity. Yeah. No, 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 no. Well, look, you look, you got to be ready, you know, because you don't know what's going to happen here. So you okay? So he doesn't stop, and you warn him, and he's coming at you. So you pull out your electromuscular disruptor. Yeah, that's. That's sort of the technical term for it. Yeah, that's what it is. That's right. So you use it and it works. They don't work all the time, but I use it and it works. And it goes down, you cuff it and you call it in. And the sergeant, your sergeant's close by and he hears it. He's coming over to check on you. He pulls up and he says, what happened? You say, sergeant, this guy was in the middle of the street driving traffic. I don't him out of the street. He came towards me and put me in fear. And I tased him. He went down. I cuffed him. He was in the car. And the sergeant says, okay, all right. Uh, uh, where's the weapon? And you say, uh, he, he didn't have a weapon. And the sergeant says, oh, you tased an unarmed citizen. And you say, yeah. And the sergeant says, you're under arrest. Now what do you do? They don't say tase the sergeant. That's it. <laughs> That's what most people are thinking. Let me show you how this works, sergeant. It's that training. That, that would be kind of crazy. We have to allow people to commit self-defense and certainly police. But that's exactly what we were doing to these victims of domestic violence. We weren't allowing them reasonable self-defense, right? We weren't allowing reasonable self-defense. And then to add insult to injury, and this was our fault, not, not, not the victim's fault, not the, anybody at the courts, not the prosecutor, this was a police problem. So um, we took a look at it and, and we because we weren't adding context into the investigation, that really made it worse because let's say a week earlier, let's say you're on the same kind of call now, but it's a week before the intersection event and you get a bar fight call and you pull up and the bartender says, get him out of here, he's causing trouble. So you go back in this bar and you arrest this guy and you bring him out and you're about to put him in your patrol car, and he looks at your nameplate and says, when? It's a small town. When? I'll see you again. You won't like it. All right, tough guy. Have a seat, right? Let's say that's the guy a week later in the street directing traffic. How fast would you use force now? You might use force faster. You're certainly going to be on a higher alert. And why? You got a history. There you go. He told you. You got a history with him now. This was the problem with these cases. We weren't digging into the history. So we didn't know whether it was reasonable force or not. We, we could not tell that. And by the way, people use equalizers. Police use equalizers. It's okay, right? It's okay. It's kind of like two, two, two brothers. We had one night. I was in the ship, leaving the ship. I was waiting on two officers to get off the call. So I just stopped by to check on them. There's two brothers. This was a domestic for us. One of them had knocked the other out cold in Julius Caesar. It's all sprawled out in the front yard, and I'm on the sidewalk watching my officers work the call. And the brother that hit him, you know, no shirt, no shoes, you know, they had a brawl. He knocked his brother out, but he didn't run and he stayed. He said, You know, he's my bigger brother. He's been beating me up for years. I told him not to do it. He came towards me, and when he did, officers, I kicked his ass. That's what he said about to my officers.
He said, I don't know what you call it. I call it kicking his ass. I said, okay, all right. That's we didn't write that in the report, but it, it was it was his way of telling us I have a right to defend myself. We left it out. And that was a mistake. So we had to look at, you know, how do we correct this? How do we fix it? So, you know, we started listening to victims. We started asking them about how do you survive in this? And we heard a lot of things. We heard, I negotiate, I, I appeal to family and friends. I, I, by the way, suspects don't do this. Be clear about that. Suspects don't care about any of this. Um, this is not what they do. It's kind of like, again, going back to this Gabe Patino case, she apologized for him. He didn't apologize for her. He just claimed she was crazy. They appease, they may get angry, they may get hostile to the police, that's possible. They may get that way to the, they're going to separate, they're going to withdraw, and they may use force. And again, I don't mean to be controversial, but there, there is a problem in the country with women in prison who are there because they were beaten for years, strangled, raped, and then they struck out, and then they were charged with murder. And hard off in Ohio, there's a project there, they've got 12 women, and I've looked at all 12 of the cases, and 10 of them, the women were strangled before they killed the offender. So they said, what, what do you think about these cases? This is a clemency project. Several states have them. And I had to be honest, I said, if I were a police officer and someone were strangling me, I would be justified in using deadly force. You can kill somebody for strangulation. We know that now. You know, victims survive strangulation, but if they do, they're around 700% more likely to become a homicide victim. Strangulation is a quick way to kill somebody. These women are in prison and they're sort of, they're sort of invisible. It's really pretty amazing to see these women try to get out of prison, serving their time, parole boards, they won't release them. It's happening around the country. So I don't mean to get to that point, but you can get that, not understanding people's use of force. And then when you talk to offenders, um, here's what they say. Now, this, this is Ty, this is, and when you see him, don't, Judging by his hairstyle, it's a bit dated. Listen to what he says. And this is Michael Paymar. Michael Paymar, uh, along with Ellen Pence, created the Duluth model of batters intervention programs. And Michael's doing a full interview. This is a long interview, but I just pulled a couple of pieces out of Michael's interview with Ty. This is what he says about women's use of force. That sometimes think about factors in these episodes. Yeah, she did. Fully to justify that. And sometimes, um, after I knew that she wouldn't hit me, after I'd hit her and she would defend herself, sometimes it was almost like I was waiting for her to be, I was waiting, waiting for her to throw something at me, waiting for her just to brush up against me. And I could hit her and really feel justified. She hit me first. Many times were the police called in your household? Do you remember? Nope. So there's more, but 
He was waiting for him. And this is one of the things when you look at dominant aggressor that we missed in the past was how much force, how much coercion, what was the intent, what's the context in these cases, what's the meaning of it? There's, there's, there's meaning to violence for these offenders. You know, for years, you know, you go to the scenes and all, you see things broken, open and drywall, you know, broken telephones, things not repaired. And you think, man, what a horrible place. This place is a wreck. Well, the offender breaks things for a particular reason as well. Let me show you. Remember the last time I got in the argument? And they'll point to the broken door. They'll point to the hole in the drywall where they didn't fix. So they use these things day in, day out. Um, and then risk assessments. And I know. That's not, and, and Dr. Campbell says this, and a lot of other people say this, risk assessments aren't designed for this purpose. But I'm going to tell you, I think risk assessments, for my purpose, help police find that primary aggressor. When you start asking these questions about strangulation and jealousy and guns and violence towards children and unemployment, these kind of questions can help you find that, that, that predominant aggressor. And you can't have both parties using violence but I think there is a difference. And I, I if you talk about this if you like. It's been my experience. Now, I know there's an exception to this because I've arrested women for all kinds of things, including murder. But I think most often when women use force, it's to stop force. That's just my feeling on it. That's just the studies I've read, the people I've talked to about this, the prosecutors who specialize. It's not causing more injuries to the parties involved. Um, and the, the criteria you want to use is strength, right? I tell you, for sheriff's departments down who serve protective orders, they're reading the narrative for us. Not just the address. Likelihood of future injury, who's afraid, who's not afraid, why don't you want to use violence, how much intimidation, how much resistance, how much to who was to punish someone. 
who's overall risk, who's so problematic criteria. This is where we were. This this was a list right from my own agency, and I'm proud of my department, but. We were doing the oh she's irritating game. Y'all heard this before? She's just too loud. She's just too irritating. She's just screaming. She's yelling. She's pointing her finger. She's threatening us. And by the way, occasion a victim will assault an officer. It's happened. It happens. So it's not who's most irritating. And you have to think about this for a minute. This is the this is the moment, the golden hour, and if you're there as a patrol officer and you answer this call, you may not get another chance. I, there's a Columbus, Ohio is in a lawsuit right now, and I completely understand why they're in a lawsuit. It's a great agency. Officer arrives on a call on a Monday. He thinks the woman's mentally disturbed. He writes in his report. They clear the call. They get a call on a Wednesday. They come back. He's got backup. He tells the other officers, I was there Monday. She's been disturbed. She follows the officers as they're leaving the call, saying, please, you have to help me. He's a parolee out of Texas. He's got a gun. He's a felon. Please look at his, at where he's sleeping. He's got a gun there. I can't live with him. Please get him out of here. Man, we can't help you. They left. On Friday, he killed her. Now they're in a lawsuit. They made some judgment about it uh, based on how she reacted to the police. This, this is... Again, I'm talking about my own agency here. We were doing this, right? She's yelling, she's screaming. She's not making a lot of sense. Maybe the first time she's ever talked to police before. Who used violence last? Who used violence first? Who's the most insulting to us? Who's the drunkest? I mean, these were the criteria that we used for a long time. They didn't work. And when you got a victim's a violence who use illegal resistant violence should not receive the same criminal criminal justice response. I know this is a controversial thing as well. It down to bit. How do you I know you're shaking your head? I mean, I, how does this happen with you? Can you have a women's group that's got six women right now without majority? They are not. Still have them in our program. So, is your curriculum the same? No. So you're acknowledging. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you're acknowledging to us that you've got two people arrested. One's male, one's female. You're a batter's intervention program, but you have to deal with their behavior over 26, 52 weeks of your program. And you're telling me that you're doing something different with women than men. So your feeling is what? Again, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Okay. A lot of people. So you process it up front as soon as they come in, right? And then they, by the way, think about situational violence. This was a real problem for us as well for years because we go to the scene, and I know this, this is going to sound odd when I say it this way. We go to the scene, 
there'd be some violence between family members. And you'd break everything down, you separate people, get them an eyesight, earshot, you start talking, you start doing the interview, and there was no sex assault, there was no coercion, there was no intimidation. It was two brothers, two sisters, you know, somebody got an argument, somebody was mad, somebody shoved somebody, somebody slapped somebody. That's a criminal act, but it wasn't domestic abuse. Does that, does that make sense? So they didn't have all the other elements to it. So that is situational violence. We do handle those kind of calls, police do. But we don't know until we dig deep and find the context of it. Uh, Duluth, by the way, they've got a whole prosecutor's protocol just on what we just talked about. The difference between your regular basic DV offender who's ordered to go to a VIP program and a victim who was arrested using, am I saying that right, using violence. There you go. And these are things we don't talk much about in law enforcement, but we have to talk about. And I'm not saying don't enforce the law. No, I'm not. That's not saying that at all, right? Um, if you want a copy of the loose uh, protocol, also, it's pretty interesting. Um, they looked at it carefully. And they know there's a difference. But context is what we were doing. The contextual picture just wasn't visible. We weren't painting it for the courts and for the judges and the prosecutors. The other thing, too, that I, I'm watching sort of evolve is the whole state of mind. It's kind of like uh, what I said earlier. What were you thinking while this was happening to you? This is the Salem organ. This is a part of the strangulation questionnaire inside the Salem organ field report for uh, patrol officers. And one of the things that they uh, asked the victim, what were you thinking when strangled or suffocated? Now imagine what the victim might say to that. Hell, I thought I was gonna die. Uh, and, you, and by the way, you're not fabricating evidence. You're not lying. You're just writing down what the victim said they thought while they were being assaulted. They, they're open to, you know, questioning in court. This is not this is real stuff, though. This is what they were thinking. It's the victim's experience. If you're victim-centered, trauma-informed, this is where you want to go. That's where we're headed in policing. And the standards here have changed a little bit. I think forever we wanted officers to find that probable cause and locate that offender and locate the victim and identify the offender. And by the way, the reason to locate the offenders up there is we haven't done a very good job historically when the suspects left the scene. It's kind of like they violated the protective order. We get on the scene and she says, well, he's gone. And then some agencies will say, well, call us back if he comes back. That's not law enforcement, by the way. But we were doing it in, in our jurisdiction as well. And I, you know, I used to ask my officers, so you got an order from a judge who says, don't go around, don't do this, and you went to see and they weren't there, but you didn't make out a report or you didn't pursue the suspect? No. It's kind of like, you know, saying, well, you got a bank robbery and you, the alarm went off and you ran in the lobby with your gun drawn. You said, where's the bank robber? And the clerk says, well, hell, they ran with us at the alarm off. Would you say, damn? One of these days, I'm going to catch him in a lot. I mean, that's got crazy. You know, that didn't make any sense. What does your pursuit look like? That's the question. Are you pursuing this thing? Especially somebody who violates protective order, they're thumbing nose at the judge. And when you do that, I mean, come on, that's just insanity. Our judges, you know, for years, we just let it go. Not anymore. We've got TV judges now. I like to tell you, it's... Uh, amazing to go into court, and this is one of the last cases I was involved in, 
went into court with the guy, violated an order 27 times. He called his girlfriend 27 times under protective order. We took him back to the same judge who issued the order. And we said, Judge Robinson, we said, Judge, he violated the order. He called his girlfriend 27 times. And the judge said, Oh, I served you. Did I not, did I not serve you in this? Said, yes, Your Honor. Yeah. He said, Yeah. That's not proper courtroom etiquette. Yeah. Something else. Yes, sir. And Judge Robinson said, Well, if I serve you and you call her 27 times, he said, Your learning curve has flattened out on you. So I'm going to put a little spring back in it today. I'm going to give you 10 days every phone call you made to her. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's actually adding it up. And the judge says, I'll add that for you. That's 270 days. He says, Sheriff, get him out of my courtroom. So they've got him in cuff now, walking out of the courtroom just before they get him to the jail door. He says something about the judge's mother. Yeah, y'all know this guy, right? He didn't know the judge's mother. The judge said, Well, bring him back in here one more time. He said, Sir, I think I'm just going to flatten that out. Let's just make that 300 days. Anything else you want to say to the court today? And the guy lost his voice right there in the courtroom. But the symbolism of this, I can't tell you how important this is, especially for a police department who's had an officer killed serving a protective order. You want to get an officer killed? Don't hold people accountable for filing a protective order. That'll do it. Our judge understands that. So this is big stuff here. This is sending a message not only to law enforcement. I'm with you. You go, you knock on that door, you risk your life, you've, you've served these orders, you enforce them. I know it's dangerous, I'm with you all the way, and I'm going to hold them accountable if they violate the orders. The other message for victims is, you can come to get an order, and the law is going to keep its promise. And by the way, if you do that, more victims get orders. I've got friends down around the country who are doing knock-knock operations, and I love these things, where they'll give all the addresses out to all the deputies in the field of the people who have an active order on file, and when they're not busy, they just stop and check on the welfare of the victim. Now, this is interesting, right? Now, the advocate's got this worked out, but here's a deputy with the order, and they're knocking. Hello, Miss Jones. Where are you, Miss Jones? And guess who comes to the door? The old Bob. See, Bob's opening the door now, and Bob's standing there. He's now violated the order for the judge, and these deputies, like in Pitt County, North Carolina, say, Bob, what are you doing back here? We put you out here six months ago, didn't we? Uh, yeah, uh, but uh, she's making uh, 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 fried chicken. I love her wings. Yeah, and then the deputy say, "Well, you're in luck because we're having chicken fried steak at the jail." <laughs> you're under arrest. Like you know, easy, easy. I mean, what else would you need? And, but the thing about it is, when you do these kind of things, more victims get orders. Advocates will say, "You know, it's not really just a piece of paper anymore." What a great thing that is. So. This is a big one. I, I, I wanted to emphasize that it's such a big one. Obviously, you know, identifying your victim, who is that? It could be him, could be her, we don't know. The law is gender blind, and it should be. Um, obviously, assessing lethality and danger, that's the new part. That's where we're moving next. You know, I use this acronym. There's a lot out there, but I want to show, the police don't necessarily need this, but the reason I'm showing this is because I think sometimes other folks who work with the police don't really understand that whole, you get the call, you respond to the call, you make yourself safe, you make the party safe, you check on the welfare, you separate the party, you interview both parties, you find it. I mean, this is a really drawn out operation. Sometimes you 
We can complain though from advocates. And the advocates used to come to me and say, Lieutenant, I got a problem with one of your officers, and 99% of the time we can figure it out, right? So I invited the advocates to ride along with my officers. And I, I interviewed them before they rode along and I after they rode along. And I tell you, it was amazing to ask these advocates, tell me what you think. Oh my God, oh my God, I had no idea that it's such a tense moment, you don't know who's who. And then you put your hands on people. You're, you're patting people down. They get mad. They get pissed off. Then you got to separate them, right? And then you got to talk to the kids by themselves. Yeah. And you don't know who's got a gun. You know who's got a knife, right? I had this conversation last week in Texas. Everybody's got a gun. It's not a state, actually. It's a Texas. It's not. These aren't Americans. They're Texans. But they all have guns. So this is a whole other issue with law enforcement. So controllable parties. Pull them apart, look for weapons, moderate the mood. This is what kind of goes, this is the mental checklist that every officer should have running in their heads every time they respond to a call or incident product of violence. Cautious if you're by yourself. Look for a weapon, moderate the mood, bring down emotion, bring up the rationality. De-escalate, as you said. De-escalate, right? If you can. Um, look for signs of Sociological signs, civil rights violations, liberty. Again, when I talk about Evan Stark, he talks about liberty, taking away someone's liberty. That's pretty important stuff. You know, we're looking for this. Is not these. These aren't injuries here. That's not something you look at. It's not bruised, cut, abrasion. This is something else. Here they. And this is what we've known this forever. This is the standard checklist: bite marks, scratch marks. You know, and I, you analyze this. I, you know, I asked my officers, I said, well, have we thought about how men fight versus women fight? And you wouldn't think it'd be a big deal, but it could be. How do women physically fight unless they've been trained by the military law enforcement? Nails, by edge weapons, scratching, scratching, biting. I mean, you, you're probably not going to pull up on a bar fight, see two motorcycle guys in the parking lot, you know, scratching. I mean, you, know, you never rule really anything out, you know, it's possible, you know. But not generally. So here's the here's the problem. I scratch you. Thirty minutes later, I see a, a mark on your hand. That's when the officer arrived. He punches you in the stomach. You don't see that. Either. That's a problem with interpreting injuries. So you got to be with the person long enough to figure it out. I'll show you an example of it. Because um, you'll see these injuries beneath the clothing line. And who who started? Uh, that's not the question because here's what you'll hear. Oh, she pushed my button. And I've heard that button bank for years and years and years. And I just started asking people, where's, can I see uh, your button? <laughs> Where is your button? Like to see it. I, don't, I want to get a picture so I show people what a man's button looks like. <laughs> but what, what, is, what, is a, what is a man's button? Yeah. How dare her say that to me? And look, I know it's not us. I'm not talking about us. This is offenders. But this is somebody saying, she got my face. Really? Okay. So that's when your button was pushed. Yeah. She, she told me something about you. I didn't like to hear what she had to say about me. So then you hit her. Pray. 
or she pushed your button. Um, again, who's most aggressive? Who's in fear? So Ty, this is what he says about this. I told us, you know, you know what gets me mad. You know what I can take and what I can't take. You're responsible. You know what makes me angry. You know what gets me pissed off. You know how I'm going to react to it. I've told you. I've told you how I'm going to react. I told you if you do this, if you say that, I'm going to get pissed off. You don't want to see me pissed off. And then when she would do it, when she would say it, then I would break things, hit her, yell at her. Then I could turn around and blame her. Get up. What about the guy being for you? Just get up. This is your fault. I don't think you made it your fault. Your fault. You knew what person you knew. You Push me along the line. You did it. It's your own fault. You must have wanted it. So, so your mindset at the time was that she uh, deserved it by her actions, and so you felt justified. When, when did it cross the line, or did it ever cross the line? So, I get, I, yeah, I tell you, he, this guy's on the other side. He's actually doing better than him at your work. But it looked like the me kind of getting into that a little bit. Y'all don't tell how enthusiastic he was about that. I mean, he's be honest to himself. That's it. How dare you? Here's what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen. Talking to somebody like they're a 10 year old, this is the thing about, you know, my whole, I've got a lot of issues with how men treat women. But this one is just so damn obvious. When you talk about somebody like they're a child, a grown woman, like she's a child, buddy, I mean, I'm, I'm there. I'm almost there. Just give me a little bit more. And that says everything about somebody to me. Because you're, well, they're not adults. They're less than. Um, and you know, this is, we've seen this in cases. This is this, this, this bias against victims. So we're asking police, look, look at all the things we've done in the past. Size the weapon who has skills to escalate, as I said, is it offensive. These are the standard. This is evidence of because witnesses, if, if they'll talk to you, um, they may not want to talk to you. Again, self defense, self defense is a self defense, right? Got to have PC, that's part of our reasoning for arrest. Can't do it without that. And it can be more than just injury. I just want to stress that. We, we got to move away from just injuries. That's a big problem that we're seeing around the country. And the more we understand trauma, we define trauma, we're getting there. And then let somebody else figure it out. This went on for a year. I don't know. Let the judge figure it out. Well, hell, the judge is home in bed. I mean, they're, they're not here to help you. You got to do this by yourself. This is all the work, right? And I'm not here to change anybody's policy, obviously. But we have to look at things like body language. Now, if I mentioned this earlier, it's pretty amazing. You know, I, I had, for years I had trouble explaining this to people because I didn't know how to explain it to myself. But it's it's like, um, oh, I, here's, here's one quick example. When some of you went to school when you were a kid, did they paddle kids in your school? Did you ever go to school where they paddled kids? Really, I'm really amazed at that. That's just how old I am. So that, I was the paddle king. Yeah, I had, I had, the, I had the most paddling of anybody because I was in trouble in school. But what they would do to me, and I, 
I never faced a single school year in a single school system for probably 12 years. But, you know, we were moving all the time because the police were chasing us. That was one thing. But anyway, I'd go to the principal's office, and they wouldn't hit you right away. They'd let you sit out in the principal's office for a while. And uh, this was a common event. They'd let you sit there while the you know, secretary's typing, you know, and the principal is in the office, and they make you wait to get paddled. That hurts as much. And I remember a couple of times saying, is he come out and hit me now? Because I wanted to get it over with. So the anticipation of being hit was a weird kind of thing. The same thing with living with offenders. You anticipate it. You worry about it. That's when the mother says, don't come home from school today. It's not going to be a good day. Go over to your friend's house. I don't want you to be here. Or I know you come home at three. I'm going to say something at two. He's going to hit me too. And then he'll calm down after that. So this is this kind of weird, odd sort of thing that goes on in these, in these homes. So if you live through those, then you start to learn people's, how they speak and what their eyes look like and how hard they walk and the kind of things they say, because you know it's coming. So you anticipate. This is part of your reading body language. You know, I had some really good cops that trained me early on, been shot, survived, been in all kind of unbelievable combat moments in policing. And well, that, you know, I, I just want to talk to these guys. What happened? How'd you stay alive? What do you do now? What did you see? Was there something there you didn't see before you got? I mean, it's just, I'm just wondering, hear it all. And as I'm listening to these really incredible people who kept me alive, I thought, wow, that sounds like living in a home filled with violence. Because as a police officer, you watch people's faces, their feet, how they react, what they do, what they don't do. And then I would, you know, take that with me as a sergeant. I'd go to the scene with my officers, and I saw it with my young officers. They didn't know it. It's hard to teach this. This is not an easy skill. And I'd go with them, and I'd just stand back, and these young officers, they're ready to go. You know, they go in. They say, what's wrong, ma'am? You know, they, where's your husband? Well, he ran the call. Okay, all right, well, go ahead. Tell me your story. And they wouldn't stop. They keep moving around. I thought, what are you doing? They're looking behind the door. They're talking. Go ahead, ma'am. I'm listening to you. I, I just want to make sure you're okay. And, and you're thinking, man, slow down, man. Calm down. Just what, what are you doing here? Then they finally say, okay, ma'am, go ahead. Finish your story. You got Many times I saw it. And this is not intentional. They cross their arms. The police officers sleep. I'm telling you whether. Go and eat, play, wake her up. They're sleeping like this. I swear to God, this is something police do. So you got your arms crossed. It's a thing, you know. And then, then he was looking to watch. This is something you watch in the watch because I got to write the report. I got to put the report. So you're looking at the watch. And I'm watching. I'm thinking, uh oh, they're doing it. I can't believe this. Then they turn the walkie-talkie up a little bit. Oh, back and back and back and back and back and It doesn't bother the police because you 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 live with a radio for years, so you don't you hear it. Anymore, but the victim's trying to tell. And by the way, I said this, they're trying to talk over the loud radio. Right? And then you realize you're standing there for a few minutes, your feet hurt. Genetically, this is a problem with police. Every cop on the planet has got some kind of bad foot problem. So the way they deal with it is they do the old police rock. So they're rocking and massaging their feet. So it's, it's just what you, you see a cop a mile away, and they're just rocking back and forth. None of that is meant to do anything other than just what police do. But what does it look like to this victim? There you go. 
And you know, and I process it with them, I say, I know you didn't need to do this, but let's 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 do a high quality connection. How about that? Not just transactional, not just showing your body language to a victim who's scared to death of everybody. Do a little high quality work here. Can you go in next time? Say, ma'am, I want to hear about what happened today. Take my time. Tell me what happened. By the way, do you mind if I have a seat with you? Can I sit down with you? And you think, what? What's that got to do with anything? This person has never been asked permission for. When you're oppressed, people don't ask your permission. They just do it to you. Right? Like the woman said when I couldn't negotiate with him, he rapes me. So that moment when you've got a woman or man in uniform with a badge saying to her, I respect you enough to ask for permission to sit down with me and have a talk. That's when you start to see things change. I have to tell you, it sounds kind of hokey, but I don't, I believe I'm right on this. I just, I've seen victims change in their behavior. And I've seen officers go, oh, they never taught me this in this academy. Never seen this before, right? So I've, I've got to look like a police officer, not the offender. Fender does this too. So we were sending all these signals to victims. It was a big, 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 big mistake. And by the way, once you've done all your work, it's a pretty, to me, it's a pretty simple equation in some ways. You got one person using violence? Is that yes? Okay. You got a single arrest. Two people using violence? Was one acting in self defense? And yes, you got a single arrest. Answer is no. Is one person the most dominant, significant, primary aggressor? You got a single arrest. No. Then both parties are equally aggressive. You got a dual arrest. It happens on occasion, but it's a rare thing. I have to tell you, Rhode Island's been studying this for probably 30 to 40 years now. Their dual arrest numbers run about 1.75%. And it's, a, you know, Rhode Island's a small state. It's the size of a postage stamp. You can do a lot of interesting things. In a small state. So that's a quick, you know, if this, then that. And then you get a case like this. This is not our case, but a neighboring jurisdiction. The sheriff gave me this and said, I want you to show this to people. And I said, Well, what is it, Sheriff? He said, My deputy gets a call. It was a boyfriend, girlfriend, prior call. The deputy did not ask about context. It went in uh, after the call came in, but before he got there, she suspected he was going to hit her, so she slapped him. There'd been violence in the past, right? So we didn't know that in the original interview. So he grabbed her, he punched her, he strangled her, and relative stopped the fight. The deputy got on the scene, and she said, oh, I slapped him. And the offender said, I didn't do anything. So he arrested her, put her in a holding cell for 10 hours, and this is what developed. I think you can see, just barely on her jawline, you can see a round bruise right under her jawline. Your thumbs, your largest pins on your hand. And very often when there's a strangulation, either a one-handed or a two-handed, you might see the thumbprints appear on the on the on the neck. Maybe. Maybe. Some of the other things you might see is a victim starting to pull the hands away. They'll scratch themselves. Right? That's possible. Or they'll scratch the top of the offender's hands or the face of the offender. This could be defensive. You don't know yet, you got to work it out. But in this case, he ran his hands really high on her neck and broke her hyoid bone. It's uh, 
We phone looking phone that sits at the base, at the back under your tongue. And um, when he snapped it, now you can live, it's not your trachea, your trachea collapses and your airway is obstructed. You're gonna, you're, you're gonna die if you can't do a tracheotomy. But with uh, the Howard bone, it snapped it and she was, <coughs> and she was heavily wheezing and breathing in a holding cell for 10 hours. That wasn't good. So the mom came to Baylor out and they're changing her clothes and they see all this and they're saying, wait a minute, what's going on? And she said, they arrested me because I said I slapped him and he didn't do anything. So the sheriff gets involved and the mom's there and the dad's there and they're saying, this doesn't look right. So the sheriff calls the deputy in from the field and he gives him this PC and he says, she said she meant to slap him. And they realize they have a problem. They call the prosecutor. The prosecutor comes in and says, we'll fix this. Case dismissed. And they charged him with a felony assault because everywhere you look in her body, there were injuries. I mean, she was just covered in injuries. Again, this was a, she was arrested for this. And uh, a rib was broken, right? And um power bone was broken as well. Not make a statement at all. Besides slapping. She never said he said he didn't do anything, but she never said that he did all that. As soon as she said I this is what the sheriff said, she said I slapped him a couple of times. Oh, we we used to do this too as well. But this can happen. This is an easy thing to happen. And then this is this is Training, you know, I, and I, I've studied problems in policing for ages. I am a firm believer that the issues that we have in law enforcement can be cooked down to two different things who you hire, how you train them. Believe it. We're pretty good at hiring. I mean, we are, you know, I, I looked at our recruit uh, questionnaire not long ago in Nashville 16 questions, 16 questions about prior domestic violence calls for potential recruits. That's pretty good. When I started, no questions. My polygraph examiner was more concerned about, are you a communist and do you smoke marijuana? I don't know why they asked that question. I guess there was a lot of pot smoking communists trying to get on the National Police Department. I, <laughs> I didn't understand it. But now they're asking questions like this. So the selection process is getting pretty good now. The other part is training. How do you train? How do you train? How do you retrain? Training's perishable. It has to be like the gun range. You got to be back on range. You got to be back on range. So um, this is still a problem. I have to say this is still a problem. So the negative consequences, obviously, these cases rarely get prosecuted. You've got a bad dual arrest. Children removed from the, the protective parent. Uh, Fender gains power. Now, let me stop right here and just say this. I've watched this happen. This is an interesting moment um, where the offender will start with you as an officer and say, well, well, look, I know I'm here and I'm not supposed to be here, but she invited me over. There's a protective order, and she invited me over, so she violated her own protective order. You can't do that. There's, there's no such thing. For her, in order for him, Prosecutor charged the woman for violating the order. Case went all the way to the Iowa, the, uh, the Ohio Supreme Court. The Ohio Supreme Court pretty clearly said 
the victim's behavior is irrelevant. It's got nothing to do with the protective order. But there was this weird sort of belief that, oh, yeah, you violate your order. No, no, no. Unless, by the way, you live in Iowa, the only state in the country that when you get a protective order, they'll tell you, you can be arrested for this order. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why they haven't changed it. They're looking for a test case. The only state that does that. We're not in Iowa. Um, given a victim a criminal record, how many of you work with housing and assistance with victims? How long did it take to get into public housing? Two years, maybe? Can you get into public housing immediately now? Yeah. You can? So you didn't ramp it housing. Okay. You got a criminal record? Is that is that affected in? It does affect it. Yeah. This is the other part. Now, and, and I know that the police, I'm not trying to cause problems with any of this, but I these are the issues that sometimes just I, I try to understand it because I grew up poor. Some of you did as well. I think this. I think that policing the poor is a different kind of policing. You know what I mean? It's like she's selling food stamps. She's selling little marijuana at the back door of her apartment. She's holding something stolen for somebody. She's got some bad checks. She's trying to make a little extra money. She wants to buy something for her kids. She wants to help out a little bit, a little more food or something. He knows that, right? She says, I'm gonna call the police on you, right? No, you're not, no. Well, I'll tell them what you did and what you're doing. Another moment where the victim is afraid because they're poor, right? They're gonna be punished by, by police. I think you know, there are family justice centers around the country that when they first got started, the first thing they would do when you walk in, you get an order, they check you, see if you had outstanding warrants. We've done these things before. And you want to chase people away, that's a good way to do it. Kind of like polygraphing a rape victim. We polygraph rape victims for years in this country. And then, by the way, on top of that, we charge people for their own rape kits. The last state that did that was Alaska. I was up there training state police. They said, finally, we got it worked out. I said, what'd you get worked out? Oh, yeah, we were charging victims for their own rape kit. A state that's got a higher rape rate than any other state in the country, by the way. I said, what? Oh, yeah, $1,500 get your own rape kit. Yeah. I said, damn, right thing on it. Yeah, man. But what if you can't pay it? Oh, we'll send you to a collection agency. Yeah, I thought, whoa, there you go. Why is the rate rate so high here? Yeah, so policing the poor is a whole other science. I I spent most of my career in the housing developments. That's where I wanted to be. And I, I had women would call me and say, I don't don't come to my house. Well, don't pull your car in my drive. Don't pull in front of my apartment. I'll meet you down at the store. Payphone on the other side of it. Okay. And I knew, well, I need to report what's going on with me. I don't want my neighbor seeing a police car. This is, again, police of the poor. This is part of the problem we had for years why people wouldn't call us. And then, you know, I've had conversations since then about Indian country. And, and, and I, if you want, you want to get your blood pressure up, go to any Indian reservation in the country and talk to them about their crime. 70% or more 
crime committed in any country committed by non-Indians, right? And the rape numbers are off the scales. The homicide, right now, Native American women sit at the top of homicides, second to African-American. The deaths of white women has gone down a bit. The death of men has gone down quite a bit in domestic cases. But when you talk to reservation folks in any country, Navajo, the Zuni, places of Crow, Chippewa, places where I've trained around the country, they just found out tell you, well, the FBI does our work here. The FBI comes to the reservation. And I know the FBI has got a lot on the plate, but I've heard these stories, right? We had a woman, she was raped, she was killed. We haven't have solved the murder. The FBI, I looked at it for a couple of days, it's still unsolved. A young white woman's kidnapped off of a University of Memphis or Minnesota campus. 80 FBI agents are involved. The media is involved. A task force is created. They scour the states looking for the suspect. While the evidence on the reservation of Washington is saying, what? Just about. So you find the bias in application of the law based on the kind of victim you've got. I'm just speaking to you about what I've heard. Is it possible this could be happening in your jurisdiction? There's a population. When we were doing focus groups downstate, I heard. Now, that's that's a community we don't really go to. Really? Why not? Well, they don't call us. They take care of their own. Really? What is this, 1930s? No. But these things still go on today. Anyway, I just I, I have a soapbox there. But it, it, the system works against the Came to our academy and said, "Now this is a new view, you know, uh, of the crime. Duluth designed this, and you know, it's the same tactics of offenders, and, and it, it is pretty solid. And and, and uh, we thought, well, it's really got nothing to do with me. And then the laws changed. It said you have to arrest people. Then we said, uh oh, uh, maybe we should look at that power control wheel again. So we got it out, started looking at it, and we thought, okay, so." Isolation, intimidation, coercion, threats, sex assault. Um, uh, wait a minute. I've been isolated as a police officer. You, you get there late at night. You don't, you don't know what's going on. Neighbors call. You knock on the doors. Help, oh, please. 
and you knock on the door and the door opens up about six inches and there's a big eyeball looking at you. You know, eyeballs at night are bigger. I don't know why that is. Big black dinosaur eyeball looking at you. Are you okay in there, sir? And he won't open the door all the way. What do you want? Well, we got a call. Is everybody all right? Nobody called you. Bam, he slams the door in your face. Now what do you do? Knock again. Now they want to answer. Now what do you do? Call for backup. How long does that take? Five, ten. In Carbon County, Wyoming, it's an hour and a half. Yeah, eight thousand square miles. Only two deputies on a midnight shift. That's that Yellowstone country. Y'all been watching that Yellowstone? Yeah, that's what it's like. Damn, that's pretty big. All right, so you got ten minutes. So if your partner gets there ten minutes later. You're still standing outside, by the way. So you knock again, no answer. Dispatcher calls in, phone rings, nobody answers. You get on the PA of your patrol car. My partner and I have you surrounded. You try anything. Bring up the dogs, and your partner pretends to be a dog. <laughs> you don't have a dog. I mean, you'll do anything to get the door open, right? So, and then finally they let you in 30 minutes later, inside the house, here's what's going on. They come in, kids aren't going to talk to them if I'm not in the room. Here's what you're going to say. By the way, take that garbage, clear up the back door, clean that up, wipe your face off, get that. So they're massaging a crime scene. This is an organized criminal personality. So when we saw this isolation of the victim, we thought, well, hell, they do that to us. We know they killed police. So it works on one, try it on another. This is when it, there's like a holy smoke. Manipulation should be written in the report. The offender trying to manipulate me. I'll testify to that because I've seen it before. This is part of the evidence, right? We're now looking at this differently. The whole auto control wheel looks different to me today than it did years ago. And, and, and by the way, I've seen this translated to about 100 different languages. But the new view, obviously, is for law enforcement, especially, I, what do I do with this? So we created this. Other power control wheel. I call this the cop power control wheel. We took everything we could charge somebody with, and then we matched it to the behaviors of the offender. Does this make sense? What do you think? It it not it's not you know fancy, but if I'm thinking through as a criminal investigator, right, uh, and I see sex assault, here's what male privilege sounds like. Officer, don't you know you can't rape your wife? That's male privilege, wouldn't you think? I'm entitled to you. Have you heard that before? You can't rape your wife. Who made that rule? It wasn't the women. <laughs> no, no, it's not usually women making up these rules, right? So when you look at this, you think, well, this makes perfect sense. So since we've been using this around the country, Wisconsin, here's what they did. I thought it was pretty clever. Wisconsin, to make it easier, just took everything possible to charge somebody with and put the criminal code inside the power control wheel. Now, I know, you know, here's the thing about the power control wheel, too, because I've asked my wife when she used it when she was working with victims, I, I would say, show, show me how you use this. And the victim would come in, so they sit down, and I said, well, do you, do you recognize any of these behaviors? And I used to ask, why, why would you need to show them this? Don't they know? 
They don't know those things. They don't. I mean, you would. They don't. They just don't. So we have to show them. We don't have to show an armed robbery victim an armed control way because they don't exist. But they don't need to be trained. But this victim might not really know. It's just very possible they just don't know. So looking at the power control wheel, now we know we got a pretty good guy here, which we have to take a look closer at the context. What's it mean? What's it mean to the victim? What's it mean to the offender? What was the intent of the assault? Um, did it work for the offender? How much coercion? How much intimidation? This is a, just a snapshot of what's coming for law enforcement. Very soon. I, I predict this in the next two or three years, every police department in this country is going to have training on understanding coercive control. Uh, it's, it's coming. It's coming fast. I see your fingers crossed. You know because you work with offenders every day. You hear the language of the coercion. This is going to be a tough task for police. We're, we're still working on, you know, the understanding the manipulative behavior of the offender. We're going to get there, but it's coming. I, I can promise you. It's coming over fast. And then we have to deal with the minimizing of the victim. Again, minimizing of the victim, that's evidence to me. That's just pure evidence of somebody that's in trouble and danger. Minimizing by the offender. And, and by the way, and then we'll show you Ty here and we'll take a break. This is Ty's definition of minimizing. Don't you get me to arrest you? They didn't arrest her. No. And what reasons did they give for not arresting? To say we calm down or wait they, they didn't give any reasons for not arresting me, but what they did is they came in and uh, it was like they wanted to repair the family. You know, it's an understandable response. I mean, even sanctity of the, of the family, even the privacy of the home. That they also believe there should be a certain amount of privacy in the home, but they didn't really want to interfere with our family affairs. Just they wanted to fix it. They wanted her little boy to come out of the corner. Wanted her and I to kiss and make up. They wanted just cleaned up. And when they came and you were all calm, is that a strategy on your part that uh, I'm calm and show them that? Uh, my fault here that, that I won't get arrested. I mean, were you thinking that or was that automatic? It was like an automatic response. I wasn't consciously thinking about this is what I got. This is how I got to do it. It was just that I knew when the police came that uh, I had to get the money. Do everything I could to, to keep out of jail and to convince them that it was uh, that it was her that was a crazy one, that it was her that uh, was really the violent one. So it was her fault for what had gone on. Do you think you were able to convince them? I mean, obviously they didn't arrest her, but arrest you. Did do you think that uh, successful in convincing them because perhaps the police officers were? Yeah, I think some of the issues that I brought up to them just to perhaps of their own being male also. Yeah, I mean, I think that I did convince them that uh, that Chris was to blame, or at least partly to blame. So they they were going to arrest me. They you know they wanted me to just calm down. But they wanted I was already you know in that process. They they said you're not going to do this again. You're not going to break things. You're not going to hurt her. You know, if you were on this time, I would tell them, hey, I'm not going to do it. In fact, you know, 
What you need to do is you need to talk to her. You need to tell her to leave me alone. You need to tell her to keep her mouth shut. You need to tell her to quit starving this stuff and bringing this stuff up. And nothing will happen. Everything will be all right. So then go over to her. They tell her, don't say this to me. Don't say that to me. Don't do this anymore. Because if you do, you know what I'm just going to do. I think I know that they thought that they were doing something good. But when they left, they just continued. Tell me about the first. So he he said it's just automatic for me, right? So he knows how to minimize. He knows how to get small. And this is the friendly handshake. I'll do whatever you want. This is a pretty smart tactic on the offender's part. She had to and the question is, do we minimize? And I think the police minimize for a different reason. I, you know, I, for years I've watched police interact with all kinds of citizens and all kinds of kind of calls. And sometimes, you know, it's easier to just, you know, just watch the clock or let it run out and just move on to the next thing. But you can't do that with these kind of cases. This is this is where we find ourselves. If we minimize, then things like rape kits don't get processed. Happen. Um, Cleveland, uh, guy named Sowell, kidnapping young women, prostituted women on the street of Cleveland, killing them, chopping their bodies up. He had in the third floor of his house, he had women's body parts slowed all over the place. He kidnapped a young woman one day, tried to rape her. She broke away. She called patrol. Patrol got there. They arrested him. They went in the house. They smelled an odor. They didn't know what it was. They mentioned the report. They took him downtown. The detectives looked at the case and said, she's a prostitute. They released him. Back and killed like four of the women after that. Minimization, right? This, this is how it can happen. Now, the, now, these extremes I'm talking about, no doubt about it, I think they just tore the house down. And by the way, the city is now in a major lawsuit from the survivors because they let a serial killer go. So this can happen. I mean, and the reason I bring this up is that earlier today I talked about the big four, domestic violence, sex assault, stalking, strangulation. Those are ever present. They should be ever present in your mind that every offender has that possibility. And not to just give a narrow definition of just domestic violence so we, we don't miss the other parts of the crime. So come back from the break. I want to show you a little bit more on this. Then I want to talk about leadership and lawsuits and several other things. So Stretch is some water and come on back and we're talking about pain. Thank you. 